Hey everybody, welcome to Evil Chat number 16. This is a great talk with uh, Dr. Matt Jordan, uh, PhD in medical science and master's in exercise physiology, um, specialization in neuromuscular physiology. And so this is a guy I've been talking about, tweeting out about lately, uh, taking uh, a number of his courses online, going back to some uh well, I don't want to call it basic because it's hardly basic, but it's uh, first principles, I think is what he calls it. It's really good. And I've just, uh, I thought I, you'll hear me talk about finishing the first course. And I just discovered that I, I, I'm not, I, I, there's actually a few more modules that I have to do on it. Uh, I just, I didn't realize I wasn't actually at the end of it, but I'm very close. And so, uh, which was a deep dive into uh, muscle architecture and basic, Muscle physiology, again, not so basic, but uh, at least not to my brain. But it was really, really good to uh, to get back into that kind of thing. The next couple of courses he has uh, deal with uh, muscle asymmetries, uh, program design, which I can't wait for. Um, I actually just sort of leaped ahead to that the other day to take a look at it. It looks really, really good. And that's probably going to be the topic of our next uh, conversation. He's, I, I'm going to do a few with Matt because, uh, I don't know, you know, he's just one of these guys like I, him and I kind of think alike and we just, you know, we just, uh, we feed off each other pretty good. I think at least I hope it comes across that way. But, um, one thing I want to get out of the way right off the bat here is that, you know, if you're interested, we talk a lot about the courses and, uh, you know, full disclosure, I get, I'm not getting any kickbacks or anything like that. I'm purely doing this because I just really believe in what he's doing, really believe in the information. I think it's really good. Uh, there's a number of courses on there uh, that he sells. They're quite reasonable for the amount that you get and the depth of information, the quality of information. So if you, uh, you'll find him at Jordan uh, www.jordanstrength.com. Uh, look around there. Um, yeah, so you know, and Matt, Matt's worked with not only does he have the uh, the academic credentials that I that I listed at the beginning here. It's just he goes, with, you know, he's worked with all kinds of winter sports. Uh, I th his specialty academically as well, but also practically is you know uh, return to form after ACL injuries. That's part of what, what the uh, the uh, the asymmetry. Um, info is about you know or that's where that comes from the muscle asymmetry is really quite interesting actually uh big on eccentrics uh you know it might be good to get him and uh, mike mike young together at some point to chat about it um but anyways there's just so much there that it's i think it's really 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 good um so I, just a couple of things about this uh this talk though first you know, we, we, we just start yapping for about 45 minutes on mentors and things like that. He has uh, Per Argard and Walter Herzog are two of his mentors, Charles Poliquin. So if you're a Poliquin fan, we talk quite a bit about Charles. Um, and uh, yeah, we talk about learning and absorbing information and stuff like that. And then we get into it at about 45 minutes in or somewhere around there. We start getting into the specifics like... We start talking about sarcomeres and deep muscle physiology and pination angles and all that kind of thing. And, and we go on for I don't know, maybe an hour on that or 
45 minutes. And then the last 45 minutes to a half hour, we get into fatigue and adaptation and specifically low versus high frequency fatigue. Um, we go on about the proof of uh, the efficacy of periodization. We talk about Vershansky and on and on and on. Um, and it's, that is a really interesting discussion. Um, but one thing I wanted to say about that um, is that I kept, as he was talking and, and uh, as we were discussing and Matt was giving out his viewpoints and talking about things, I kept, it, it kept jumping into my mind, I spe uh, especially when he was talking about Vershansky and his paper, uh, The End of Periodization, and Matt brings that up. And, and actually, even before that, I was thinking about John Kiley's article, which if you haven't read it and you're interested in periodization, you got to read this article. It's called Periodization Paradigms in the 21st Century. Uh, something like evidence-driven, uh, evidence uh, I think evidence-led or tradition-driven, something like that. Anyways, really good article. And, and then if you look, uh, if you do a Google search on, Kylie's name it's k-i-e-l-y just do john Kylie periodization google it you'll find it uh there's also a back and forth where uh, uh some comments he made in a journal or something um or some writing and a response from vladimir Isurin, which is quite interesting so if, <laughs> uh so that's worth reading as well but i wanted to i kept wanting to mention that article through there and then i kept getting distracted and going on and anyway so i i thrown that in there at the beginning so just think you know uh what other something else um oh yeah yeah there's a part in it where we're talking way before that where we were talking about the sarcomeres and dropping sarcomeres and adding sarcomeres and and sarcomeres uh in terms of uh um increasing muscle length and i and i say something like uh, talking about muscle lengthening and, and and I meant just to be clear on this because I know Stu's going to give me shit on this when he hears it but if if you keep listening it all becomes clear but I just want to say right up front when I when I was talking about muscle lengthening I was talking about you know the actual muscle lengthening which sounds quite ridiculous but not 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 lengthening in the eccentric sense right so <clears throat> anyways just I just thought I would throw that out there because I you know uh because it sounds quite, when I went back to um, edit, it sounded quite ridiculous. It sounded quite ridiculous. So, uh, but then you keep listening, and it all makes sense afterwards. So I just, you know. Anyways, uh, that's the problem when I talk to people that are way smarter than I am. But anyways, so listen, uh, I think it's a really good podcast. This is really good, and the next couple are going to be unbelievable. I had so many questions for uh for matt and we just oh god we, we got to maybe three of them um anyways and that was just from the first course i took so i'm gonna i'm gonna tighten things up on my question and things make them a bit more global uh for the next couple podcasts but him and i are gonna do some more and they're gonna be really really good and i think you're gonna enjoy it and thanks to everybody who's been giving me the feedback on the podcast so sorry i took so much time off but now we're back into it they're going to be coming out regularly hopefully once a week but maybe not every week but anyway so <clears throat> yeah one other thing i um i've been playing with the sound levels again uh and this one's a little out of whack because i think i turned my end up too high because i get still still getting the odd 
complaint mostly from Stu that it's uh that it's a little the sound is a little bit too low so I'm still trying to deal with that but but uh, I, I think it's pretty good I'm a little distorted I think I have my gain up a bit too high on this one so but uh sooner or later I'll get that all sorted out so I won't keep going on here so here you go for better or for worse here is my evil chat with Dr. Matt Jordan hey Matt how are you man I'm doing well, Derek. Thanks for uh, giving me an opportunity to be here. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be pretty good. I, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, uh, I just finished course one, so I just, uh, which has been really interesting for me because it's been so long since I've done a deep dive into any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of general sport i wouldn't call it general sports science because god you get so specific and so deep into it it's really good but i mean you know back in the day when i was a young coach and i was i was uh <clears throat> trying to self-educate and man i was i was doing a lot I, I was reading a lot of you know uh you know deep physiology or you know to me it was yeah. anyways but this is uh this is this is on a whole other level and it's brought a lot of brought a lot of interesting uh you know uh thoughts you know reminded me of some things and i've learned a ton like i've learned a ton and it's and it's also interesting i mean it's probably 20 years since i went that deep to, to see what's what's changed so right. how, how's how, how's the course is doing anyways everything's yeah i mean you know honestly uh yeah it's been it's been good i i uh this has always been on my radar, uh, uh, Derek. Like I love teaching. I love I love sharing knowledge. And it's funny you say that about you know how long it's been since you took a deep dive because I can say probably over my career thus far, I've probably had about four times where I've gone deep on things. And it's funny like you go back and you review and you relearn the basic science. And you review and you relearn it. And then there's always new stuff happening in the field. So you totally. add a few layers, right? And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm, just, uh, I'm just such a big believer that, you know, kind of integrating that, that basic science that you learn. Sometimes I call it first principles, but first principles mm -hmm. of physiology and biomechanics. Stu and, and I talked about that. Yeah. He, he, he brought that up with your name. He said, you know, you call it first principles, which I think is good. It was, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's like, that's probably the, you know, the, the passion I have. So yeah, the courses have been good. I mean, we, 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 uh, it, it's been a work in progress, as you know, um, uh, it's not a big, it's not a big, uh, enterprise. It's not easy, is it? No, no, it's not. And you gotta, you know, <laughs> those together. learning as I go, right. It's, it's, you yeah. know, I, I got my website revamped about, five years ago. And then, uh, you know, thank, thankfully have a, a guy that I, I work with pretty closely who's helped me develop my website has pointed me to some good tools. So, you know, you get a learning management system and then you right, right, try to right. learn, learn to record your vids and do all that right, stuff by right. yourself. You well, know. Yeah. well, one thing I like about it is you, you and I kind of have the same sort of uh, approach, right? Where, you know, we're a little rough around the edges. It's not, I wouldn't call them slick productions. Yeah. <laughs> Yours or mine, right? It's, basically us standing in front of a of a camera or an iphone I, I i did about half mine on iphone and half on the camera that you're actually using right now to to record this audio but um and just sort of teach right but right. the information is like really really good right yeah. and so you know i think uh 
yeah, I mean, if I waited to make it to make it slick, first of all, I never make. I mean, I make almost nothing off of it, anyways. But I would be, I'd really be in the hole because that costs a ton of money. And does, yeah. second of all, it would take me forever to get it out. Yeah. Right. Like it would. Like I'd still be working on that bonder check course, which took me almost a year to put everything together. I mean, yeah. it's 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 pretty crazy. I don't. Yeah. But anyways, anyways, yeah. no, I really, I really, really like this stuff so far. I cannot wait to get into program design, right? Is, is right. that the second course? Uh, so the, the second course uh, goes, goes much more into um, assessment. And so what I'm trying to do in course uh, two is, is bring together uh, two components. Uh, I would say component number one is framing up the qualitative subjective coach assessment uh, from my lens, right? So how, how, how would I appraise movement and what sort of factors am I taking in? How am I thinking about the problem? And uh, in, that, in that approach, I, I try to introduce uh, a, few, a few models that we can use to frame up what we're actually trying to do. And then I go uh, quite deep on the dual force plate asymmetry testing and uh, mechanical muscle function testing with the force plate system, which then tees up uh, the, the, uh, program design, the course. program design. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so, so course one, which I just finished is basically the basic science. Got it. Basic. I use that term kind of loosely, <laughs> pretty deep but for me anyways. Uh, and then you, and then the second one is on assessment. Third one is on program design. And what's the last one again? I mean, I, I, I know this cause I, I'm, I've registered for all of them, but what, what's, what's the last one? Yeah. So I, I mean, the last component of the course is, uh, and I mean, each, each course is, is quite a, quite a, a bit of, of info. And, and obviously mm -hmm. we're going through a lot of, a lot of different aspects of it, but the final part of it is, is a mentorship, which, um, uh. you know, I've got, I guess that I'm just trying to think about how to unlock the full potential there. Um, I, I've invested this past year and a half um, by virtue of some courses I've been taking my own my own courses. I took a mm. took a leadership and mentorship course through Royal Roads University. I've been trying to better understand two pieces, leadership and mentorship and what that means. and I'm, I'm starting to learn more and more about how I want the mentorship piece to run. And, and so that's why it's been a bit of a delay. And I, I have had people reach out to say, hey, I really want to do the mentorship. When can I sign up for it? And I've been reluctant to pull the trigger until in my own head, I've got some models of mentorship. And so I finally, you know, I finally got my head around this after actually investing formal time, not just reading a book here and there, but actually formal time in the area. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hopefully have that released in, uh, in 2022 here. And uh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, that's so hard. That's so hard to do mentorship. Um, it is. And, you know, doing it in a way that doesn't consume all of your time and right. makes it, you know, because, I mean, let's face it, man. Like, uh, How many kids you got? You got four, right? I got three kids, three boys three. and a, do oh, and a dog. So maybe three and a half. Right? Uh, so you're the same as me. I have three kids and a dog. Yeah. But I'm probably about, what am I, five years ahead of you? How uh, how? How old's your oldest? Uh, my oldest boy is uh, 14. The The middle boy is turning six. Oh. And then the youngest one is uh, uh, three and a half. Oh, okay. So we're, we're, yeah, okay. So my oldest is 14. Okay. But right, my, go. but my number two and three are 13 and third, well, 
12 and well they just they're all having their birthdays right now but by the end of the summer they will they will be 13 14 15 oh my God. so it's uh yeah it's it's uh it's not easy man i mean <laughs> it's not easy man. doing yeah. that no 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 but back to the mentorship thing i mean it's it's really uh you know that's a that's a tough thing to do i mean one of the one of the reasons why i started that bonner check course was because i was getting so many requests for information on it right and and you know you know i come from i come from that school where you know people ask you give right when it comes yeah. to information right yeah. and and it just it was just consuming so much time i and i wasn't you know and i wasn't getting anything like i was getting no money for it and so i thought no i'm just gonna make a course and so i yeah. i did the course i split it with dr b and you know whatever but i mean it's uh yeah, no, no, I know that's that's pretty tough. Hey, listen, talking uh, speaking of mentors, so one name that comes up a lot in your, I mean, a lot of the research that you that you cite um, in 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 this course is is it, it, now. Correct me if I don't say this right. Is it per Argard? Argard? Yeah, yeah. So he, so I've seen that name a lot. Like he's basically a. Uh, uh, I mean, he's kind of, uh, you know, way up there in the, in the, uh, in the, I don't know what, in the, in the muscle physiology world of, 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 uh, of research and science. Like, so he, so you've, you've, you actually studied under him, worked under him, did like, yeah, some in, I did. Yeah. Him? I mean, yeah, so yeah, in a nutshell, uh, it, it's funny, I, I would put, you know, pair and, and, and I often mention Walter as well, Walter Herzog, but both of those individuals right, and, that's the and, other name that comes and why I think I naturally gravitated to them is that they both have their origins as coaches. So Pear was a like a strength and conditioning coach in Denmark. He was working at the Olympic Training Center. Um, and Walter was a he wanted to be a high level track and field coach. And so he, uh, Walter was actually a really good uh, middle distance runner. Um, and, and a good long jumper actually. And he, he sort of like national level in, in Switzerland, but mm. both of those individuals have their roots in, in my world, our world, Derek, right? Practice, mm. practical mm. application. Mm. And they both go through a journey of diving into the science to understand, to become a better coach is kind of funny how they put it. So I met pair in 2008. I was down in Colorado Springs, at a conference with uh, with a, with a few of my good friends, Matt Price, Scott Ma, uh, there was a couple of other of us down there uh, from Canada, and uh, I saw this presentation from Pear, um, where he you know he went through about an hour about how to use the vertical jump as a, 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 a tool to assess mechanical muscle function in, in athletes and people as they age and whatnot, and. I guess at that point in time as a strength and conditioning coach, I'd really struggled because, you know, I knew I needed to be scientific, but I really struggled to find something that was useful, uh, you know, in terms of being able to pick up the small changes that I needed to see. And very often, you know, the challenge is that we, we, as coaches, we, we measure the outcome, right? So you measure how far you jumped, you measure how fast you ran, you measure, you know, how many I don't know, free throws you hit, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. but really, you know, what, what I think we're coaching off of is, well, how did you do that though? <laughs> so how did you jump that high? How did you throw those free throws? And so I struggled there because I could get numbers on performance, but I really had a tough time getting to the strategy of how athletes were moving and, and what they were doing. And pair just unlocked that potential. And so 
Honestly, Derek, at that stage in the game, 08, uh, you know, I'm going through a divorce. Um, you know, I have a young son who's one. I'm um, rolling into the Vancouver Olympics. I, you know, it was a swan song for Canadian sport. It was the best of times, right? It was it was our mm-hmm. swan song. It was amazing. Um, and then I exited the Vancouver Olympics and I was just ready for a pivot in my career. And at this point, I'm kind of early 30s. And uh, honestly, it was a tough, it was a tough go in my life. But what I did is I looked for mentorship and I, and I found, and I didn't even know I was doing it, but I was like, who do I like? Who are the people out there that I like that resonate me with me that that I respect their knowledge, I respect who they are as people. I you know, they they've hit a chord in me and I kept coming back to Walter and Pear. And so I was navigating trying to figure out how I would do a PhD. To be honest with you at the time I was thinking about going back to med school. I actually thought about just doing a full career shift, but I was like, no, no, I'm going to stick in my, my career here. I'm going to, you know, I want to wow. get that. Get you the- were going to go to med school. Yeah. I, I'd always had it on my radar. Honestly, it had always been on my radar. I'd always had that be a sort of my, 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 my plan. But when I found coaching and, and all the things that we do, I, I mean, I loved it so much. It was just hard to, I had to pursue it. Right. So it was a better fit, you know, for me at the time to, you know, obviously, you know, I was splitting up with my ex and I had a kid and I I just couldn't foresee me going to medical school on an eight to 10 year journey and trying to raise a son by myself. That would have been impossible. Well, it would have been impossible. It would have been hard, but uh, yeah, long story short is I, I, I reached out to pair as I was sort of narrowing in on a topic and uh, I'll be honest with you, the, the stars aligned. I was looking for, I was looking for the question. I was looking for the thing that would align with my interests, my direction, and basically Pear and Walter. And so when I found it, I reached out to both of them independently and I said, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm using this dual force plate system pair that I got from watching you in 08. It's now 2011. I'm working with skiers. So many of them have ACL injuries and we don't have any robust methods to really determine when these athletes are ready to get back to sport. And I'm using this dual force plate system pair that you 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 introduced us, not because he, he introduced a dual force plate system, but because the plates I were buying were were cheap. They were 500 bucks a plate, okay. but I but they were small, and I needed two of them to be able to yeah. uh, do my measurements, just because I, athletes couldn't stand on one. And I naturally stumbled on this thing. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. When you got a force plate underneath each foot, you can see the fraction that the right and left well, are contributing. Well, that's what I was just gonna. Yeah. I was just gonna interrupt you there. I was. I was gonna say. So you you got so you you got two of them not because you wanted to assess the ace the yeah. asymmetries. No. You got two of them because the one you had was too small. Yeah, they were just too small. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was totally. It was a you know and and, and uh, you know not but, that I'm I'm doing some big scientific. Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to understand mechanisms to, to cure cancer here, but you know, sometimes it's like, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. You know, those, that's a famous quote about this idea that, you know, I, I was listening, I was, I was learning, I was trying and yeah, but, but I get this dual force so, plate system and pair was like, Hey, by the way, I got a, I got a PhD student who's doing the same thing. And boom, that was it. We oh, ran, wow, we ran cool. and I studied under him. Well, and you, I did some coursework there and he was a huge part well, of my You actually approach. talk about you actually talk about that quite a bit in the in the in the first uh, course that I you know the one I the one I've just taken it's uh, where um, y- like you show the different graphs the different responses or the asymmetries in athletes um, that are coming back from these ACL tears and how they protect 
Yeah. Right. Is, is that the right word? They, you know, like just, just the unconscious strategies that they're using when they jump to protect that, those, yeah. uh, you know, that injured knee. Right. Yeah, I think totally. that's just pretty, pretty interesting. Um, so, uh, last thing about mentors, like, I remember when, when Charles Poliquin died, you you put out a uh, a pretty uh, pretty heartfelt personal uh, note on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So was he was he did did you know him well? Yeah, I mean, I I did, um, and because uh, he was in Calgary for years. Yeah, right? yeah, I don't want, I don't want, and I don't want to overstate it. It's not like Charles was calling me on my birthday or anything like that. But right. he was he was my first mentor in the area. I moved to Calgary. Oh, I okay. I was a I was an athlete, and a, and Charles was a strength coach here. And honest to God, I you know I was a I was a average athlete at best. But what I really loved was the weight room. And when I came to Calgary and I met Charles. It unlocked this whole world of, um, you know, the the whole world of the science of strength training, and and obviously Charles was a very cerebral, academic oriented totally. individual, um, and a great entertainer, a great entertainer, yeah, great no presenter, man. And yeah. I got a story about him. I'll tell in a second, but go ahead. Yeah, well, it. yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, he he was, you know, I, I owe him a crap ton because. Charles would come in the gym, you know, he would train and I was working at that point as a weight room attendant at the Olympic Oval weight room and, and obviously learning the ropes. And so I, I basically used Charles as my, my compass to say, Hey Charles, what do I, what do I need to do to become the best in the field? And he gave me three pieces of advice that I followed to a T. He told me one thing, which I completely ignored, which by the way, I think that's a really important thing for your mentorship positions when you're pursuing this is you don't you really do have to make your own decisions, right? So Charles told me, you know, number one, you want to you want to read lots, right? Uh, number two is you, you want to look the part. I'll take that for what it's worth, like be a passion for yeah. the game. And number three is like, don't hurt your athletes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a good rule. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. The, and the fourth one was he was like, don't waste your time doing any graduate studies because – um, you know, you're just going to become like all the rest. You're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be a peer reviewed paper reader who can't think for themselves. And so he said, don't waste your time. That's and fair I, enough. Well, it's funny. And I remember, I remember when, when I, when I decided I was like, well, I'm not listening to that. Like I, lo- I, 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 I don't, I don't, I didn't agree with that point because I, as a, as a kinesiology student who was coming out of, out of the under, of my undergrad, I, I had a number one, a thirst for learning how things worked. Number two, I had a thirst for understanding the basic, uh, like if I read something that says, you know, about, you know, let's say it's a 1980 paper from Verkoshansky or Schmidt-Bleicher on rate of force development and explosive strength and starting strength, I'm the type of person that says, well, that's really cool. How do I measure that? And, you know, whereas for most people, it was- I'm the you, kind of person that says, well, that's really cool. How do I put that into my program? Totally. And I- right? I get you. And I want, I, I, I mean, I, I, I hear you on that too. And I want to do both, right? I don't want to be just somebody who's academic and I don't want to be somebody who's just a, a practitioner. But I can remember when I, I made the choice, I was like, I went down the road to start my master's of science in muscle physiology. And I remember Charles coming by, he's like, Matt, I told you this was a stupid idea. Why are you doing it? <laughs> and I was like, Charles, because I could think for myself on this one. Yeah, um, but yeah. I took your other, you know, obviously the other three pieces of advice yeah. I thought were, were really yeah. relevant. So you got to, so, you know, it's good. It was a good time. Yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, you know, I, I kind of mixed feelings about him. Uh, you know, I mean, I didn't know him well at all. Like I'd only met him once or twice. Right. But, you know, with, you know, with, when, when Bondarchuk came, 
you know, so I, yeah, it's a, you know, I, I would get some feedback every once in a while. People would say things sh- shitty would say in a, in a, in a, uh, in a presentation. It was kind of, that was, it was a little disappointing, but yeah, totally. but when I met him, when I met him was, I was a young coach. I was in my first year of my first or second year of my uh, my job in Kamloops, which is, you know, I was a full-time coach. I was actually at the, I've said this before on the podcast, but I was the only full-time private coach in the country in athletics that was not in a university. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was, you know, and, and I was just like, I was like, this is the, t- this is the time when I was p- trying to pack my head full of all this information. I was reading everything, man. And so, but they, you know, they, uh, in order to keep my job, they forced, I was forced to do a bunch of NCCC and CCCP stuff, you know, the national coach certification program in Canada. And, you know, and it was like, not that it wasn't bad. It's just, I was just so busy. It was hard to take anyways. Yeah. And then, and then they, they said, you know, they, they said, okay, well, look, you know, we really want, we really want you to take, start taking your level four. You got to have your level four. And I said, ah, all right. So there was a week long, uh, um, there's a week long, uh, like a camp coaches camp mm-hmm. that was at university of Victoria. And I could, I could fit three of these level four court cause they each take like three or four days. And I forget what the third one was, but the first one was with Ishvan Bali. And that really, you know, uh, that was a, that was a really good, uh, you know, that was, a like that was a relationship that was became pretty meaningful to me in a lot of ways. And the second one was with Poliquin. Okay. And it was all, it was a level four on strength. And so we're all, we're all in this room. This is my story. So, so, so we're all in this classroom in one of these, you know, those little uh, thing huts they kind of have out there at the university of Victoria. And, you know, he's starting the course and it's, you know, he's going through the moat, you know, he's, and he's really not like he's, he's, you know, doing his thing, but he's probably operating at like 50% enthusiasm, you know, like he's like, fuck, I got to do another one of these kind of thing. And we're all, and we're all, and there was probably about a dozen coaches in there. There was a couple other track and field coaches. And I'm just like, I'm sitting there, like I'm just absorbing all this. Right. And he's, you know, he's just sort of going through the motions. Nobody's really asking questions. We're hours into it on the first day. And I, and I had, like I had been doing a lot of studying and I had some real, real questions. Right. And at the time I had Dylan Armstrong, he was 14 years old. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I'm a big planner, big, you know, all that. And I wanted to do it right. And I knew I had, I had another guy that ended up winning a medal. Actually, actually he won the medal. I got the news when I was at that camp that my 400 meter runner had won a bronze at the world junior championships in Australia. So that was kind of cool. I totally forgot about that, but anyways, and I knew I had, so anyways, and Gary Reed was sort of in the, in the, in the, in the mix there and they were all young kids. And I was thinking, well, I got, I, I got some serious talent on my hands. I, I, I have to do this right. Like I got to do this right. And I was really into the strength thing. And so I put up my hand and I go, like my, my number one question was, you know, how do I, how do I, um, elicit a hypertrophy effect without adversely affecting type two B fibers? This was, you know, which are, what what do they call them now? Type two X or whatever. So that's how long ago it was. Right. So I put up my hand 
And he goes, yes. And I go, um, this is kind of off topic, but you know, and I, I ask him that question, right? <laughs> he goes, he stops and it goes dead silent. Right. And he's got a piece of chalk in his hand and he, he turns around and he puts the chalk on the, on the, on the, on the shelf on the, the chalkboard and he turns to the class and he goes, look, he goes, we can do this one of two ways. He goes, either I can stand up here and regurgitate all this bullshit or you guys can ask questions and I can tell you what you really want to know. And all of a sudden, doo, 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 all these hands start popping up and he gets his big grin on his face. He goes, okay. And he takes like an hour to answer my question, right? And that was the rest of the course yeah. for the next two or three days. And I, we were all like, you know, it, you know, and that's all it took, right? It was like, and, and I was like, oh shit, you know, this guy, this guy, he's passionate about it. But oh, yeah. that's yeah, my yeah. Holocaust well, story. It was really, it was, uh, it you, was a big deal. And, you got to check this out, mister. Uh, look, check out this. Look, it's on my oh, desk. Oh yeah, I got that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, your, oh, that, it's, your, oh, it's sitting right on your desk. Oh, yeah, it's sitting right on my desk. Actually, this is the this is the actual Pollock manual from yeah from the I uh, have that. from his task too. I I mean, hey, that's I have that in a blue binder down in my thing, and I refer to it. Still yeah, refer to it. Totally. To I mean, yeah. and that you know yeah. that's that's the thing. You know, Derek, back to and this is this is going back to the point why why Charles telling me the advice not to do my masters was. Uh, was was I did not follow that advice because I could clearly see that he wasn't following that advice. Yeah. Charles <laughs> Charles was absolutely a hundred and ten percent very very well read, very knowledgeable on this stuff, and he took a scientific approach to training. So you know Charles Charles wasn't Charles was interested in understanding mechanisms. Charles was in, Charles could answer a question about how to maximize hypertrophy while potentially not you know, impairing neuromuscular drive and rate of force development and power or what have you by virtue of the fact that, you know, um, to, your, to your question, you know, might, might have to do with fiber typing or neural drive or what have you. But Charles, Charles could answer those questions because Charles was academically routed. And I always saw that. And so, you yeah. know, back to this whole point that this notion that, you know, um, you know, when I pick when I pick the best people, you got to remember, you know, you still got to filter through their advice to still make sure that the path you follow is the path that's right for you. And I chose to follow Charles's path, uh, how he did it, even though he told me I shouldn't. I was like, well, you I know you have because yeah, yeah, yeah. and oh, yeah, and, and sure. I've sat Absolutely. in rooms, you know, I've sat in rooms with Charles, too, where. You know, and I would say from that time, you know, one of my, some of my best times with Charles, I used to go out to his house. I remember driving out there in my friggin' 1984 Volkswagen Rabbit that I bought for 300 bucks. Um, you know, and this is like mid early nineties, right? Or no, it's probably like 1995, 96. I'm just getting Same rolling time. here, getting rolling. And I used yeah. to drive out to his house in Chestermere and, um, I would, I don't know. I'd just spend the I'd spend the day with him, right? And I'd I'd help him out with stuff that he needed to get done. Um, you know, I'd help. It could be all kinds of stuff. And you know, he he would pay me in supplements, which at the time was pretty much like gold dust for me, right? Getting a right. getting a tub of egg protein or something. But I, you know, honestly, this is exactly what I did, Derek. Is I would I would write programs, and I would bring them to him, and we would sit down, and and I would I would let him carve me, and so I would be like, hey, here's uh, okay. here's a program I've written. This is what I'm trying to do. What do you think? And Charles would, you know, Charles would, you know, cut me and tell me that it wasn't wouldn't wouldn't have qualified to pass his task to like you know he'd <laughs> he'd, he'd let me have it right. But at the end of the day, I think what you're what you're speaking to and what I'm speaking to is that 
you know, learning is not just standing up and trying to digest a whole bunch of information. And I call this like, this is the Ted talk, Tic Tac area, you know, consuming a Tic Tac, uh, when it comes to like sort of caloric, uh, both caloric quality and the need to actually digest. We live in a world where people want Tic Tac information. Like I want to pop open the little, the little pack of Tic Tacs. I want to pop one calorie per Tic Tac, it takes me no energy. Nobody wants to sit down and really digest the T-bone, right? Like they don't want to sit and cut it and cook it. And yeah. what, and at well, the end that's of the day, yeah, the, that's, that's it, man. That's, sorry, uh, sorry to cut you off, but that's that's why I've, I, I'm careful about what I let into my head because totally. if, I'm gonna, if I'm going to put something in my head, I want to fucking know it, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah. that's why it's taken me, like, how long ago did I start your course, man? And, 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 and I'm an, I'm an insomniac, right? Like I'm up between three and five and that's when I listen to your course or that's when I take your course. And I mean, if I was just to straight go through the videos, I get it done in three mornings. Like it wouldn't, yeah. but it's taken me months now. I mean, I haven't been at it every morning, of course, I but gotcha, because, and I'll bet you're like this. Like when I, when I listen to it, like I will like you'll you'll talk about something say a five minutes whatever it is maybe it's on you know the different which we're going to talk about in a sec like the difference between uh sarcoplasmic hypertrophy versus contractile pro protein hypertrophy you know and i'm constantly rewinding because i gotta know every single detail if you say so like i want to absolutely understand it yeah. but i'm not i mean but i'm not i'm not like Stu is seems to be really good at being able to absorb information. Like it, it's crazy what he can read and absorb. I'm not like that. I, I have to, I have to go over things constantly, yeah, yeah. but I'm, but I just can't move on until I've understood yeah. it. There's, there's very few things that I, that I, that I never actually understand. It just takes me a long time to get there sometimes. So, yeah. You know, so I, so I, I have to, anyways, back to the point is, is I, I gotta be careful what I let in because otherwise yeah. I'm just, I, I get so deep into it. I just, I, I go crazy, but totally. your course is like, it's been really good. We, we should probably start talking about some specifics because I do have a lot of questions on it. I think it's a great, it's a great course. I think you're right. Like what you just said, like, like. There's so much in it there when, when you get into basic muscle physiology that a coach, could, a lot of coach, coaches could argue, say, well, why do I need to know all that? Right. right. And I know a lot of great coaches, a ton of great coaches that have produced far more than I have. OK, that could not explain any of this to sure. you. Right. And, yeah. you know, but. I think, and, and I don't think you need to know right down. I like to go down to the deepest, deepest, darkest yeah. levels because it's just who I am. It's just, it's just, I, you know, mm -hmm. and I need to understand it. Um, and then once I have that understanding, that's kind of like that frees me up to be able to look at things from a broader perspective. If that makes sense, does that make sense to you? You, oh, know, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so anyway, so, but you know, it's, it's funny again, like, going through the course there's there's things that have i mean it's been 20 25 years so one thing that's really i found interesting is that and maybe this was i'm sure it was known 20 25 years ago but i don't remember it i knew that you could drop sarcomeres from um from from inactivity but i didn't know that you can lengthen 
fibers through through uh, resistance training how, how does like and so how does that work and when you're talking about hypertrophy and contractile protein um uh hypertrophy or genesis like what is the axis that's one part i got kind of confused on is like what when you strength train okay and we're not talking about intramuscular well neural development here but we're i'm just purely talked about the the mechanical increase of cross-sectional area what actually is increasing there mm -hmm. yeah i mean so you know just i mean just uh, i'll 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 keep it just as high yeah i'm right into it but <clears throat> yeah i keep it as high level as i as i as i can just to get it rolling but i mean obviously the the mechanical stress of resistance training is um a potent signal to tell muscles to create new proteins and when right. when we look at those proteins in in muscle there there's a there's a, a whole bunch of them but obviously the the contractile proteins are actin and myosin which are right. these thick and thin filaments that are are for, you know kind of formed in a in a in a kind of like a like a i guess you could say a uh, I always think about a, a sort of a center thick filament with all these filaments that are around it and, and they, okay. they slide like, you know, they, they, they slide right. against each other, right? So when we talk about contractile protein and we talk about, you know, increasing uh, muscle hypertrophy, we're talking about adding more actin and myosin in parallel. And obviously as so actin... That's so yeah. that's what it is. You're adding the actin and myosin. You got it. Yeah. And so as a muscle becomes, uh, you know, uh, perturbed and, and damaged through mechanical stress or metabolic stress or whatever signal, you know, that we're talking about and, you know, the, the, the body's immune system and other uh, processes call the cavalry to come in and clean up the damage and the body undergoes now a, a process of creating new proteins and, 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 and basically fixing the damaged area. You know what we what we observe is that the fiber, right, which is the cell of the muscle, gets bigger in in terms of its cross sectional area. But what right. what I what I was always again, this is my <laughs> similar to you, right? My my interest, right? I, I like to know more. I like to go deeper. I can I can recall sitting in um uh in in some meetings at the university where. Uh, again, work that Walter Herzog was doing with with uh, his uh, with his with his body of research was just trying to understand how muscles work. I mean, uh, it's going to kind of kill the kill the fun part of the of the of the presentation or not the presentation, the podcast here because it, it makes it, it look, makes dude, it seem dude. like I know I know what everything's about, but mm -hmm. but we don't really know how muscles work. <laughs> Believe it or not, right. there's there's it gets a theory, right? We have a theory. We right. call it the sliding filament right. theory, but the theory. In scientific, in, in, in terms of theories, you know, when predictions, when theories can't make predictions for whatever reason or, or, or they fail to make accurate predictions, um, that's when we have what are called scientific revolutions where, you know, you think about, you know, Newtonian mechanics doesn't work for, you know, objects that are traveling in and around the speed of light. So, you know, theory of relativity, right? That's, that's a mm -hmm. complementary theory that helps explain things that are moving really, 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 really fast. But unfortunately, theory of relativity and Newtonian mechanics don't explain things that are really, really small. So you have quantum mechanics, right? It's kind of similar, I hate to say it with muscle, okay. is that we don't know, we know how muscles work when we're talking about them shortening, but we don't really understand how they work when they lengthen. And, and there are weird phenomena of muscle when they undergo eccentric muscle contract, eccentric muscle action, so lengthening contractions, mm -hmm. that the theories just don't... Um, 
they don't, don't they don't explain. Yeah, because they, they require less energy. They make way more force. And so Walter was his whole body of research is trying to understand the basic mechanisms of how muscles work, especially when they lengthen. So I'm sitting in this uh, this meeting where a guy named Tim Leonard, who is sort of like Walter's main, you know, he's a he's a biologist who does, you know, animal, he's like an animal surgeon, essentially is what he is. So he does all kinds of basic animal studies where they take every type of animal you could imagine, you know, sheep and, you know, rats and mice and cats and whatever. And they they perform their experimental studies. And, and uh, Tim was showing data where they had taken, uh, I believe it was from a rabbit psoas, uh, but what they'd done is they'd taken this uh, this rabbit leg and they'd, um, you know, they'd, uh, they'd they'd basically done a whole whack of stretch contractions. I mean, way more than you could ever do in a human uh, study. So controlled experimental conditions. You put the you know the rabbit's limb in a in a in a in a special uh, training device, and this mm-hmm. thing just basically you know you activate the muscle and then you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and stretch mm-hmm. it. Um, and essentially, uh, when they, when they, when they go after the, the training study and they remove, um, the myofibrils, which are the, the contractile, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, these, mm-hmm. these sort of, uh, small filament, uh, comp- composition of actin and myosin, but the, 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 the sub, the subunit to muscle fibers, they look mm-hmm. in there and they measure under. So these the, make up a fascicle, right? Am yeah, right? well, the fibers make up the fascicle, and the, the and fibers the, make up the fascicle, and the myo- these make up a fiber. You okay. got it. The myofilaments it. make up the okay. fiber, and when they take out the myofilaments, and they actually look, what they can observe is that you've got more of these sarcomeres in series, and so you know immediately, I'm in this in this uh, you know this presentation as a strength and conditioning coach, and. I just, I mean, it's where my brain goes. I'm like, Tim, this is unbelievable. So if yeah, I understand, I mean, to, yeah, to, to, how to does this that, work? Like, yeah, how does yeah. this work in human in human subjects? And and because I mean, what I knew at the time is, if you increase the number of, um, uh, if you increase the number of sarcomeres in series, it increases the velocity of shortening. Uh, by virtue of the right. fact that you've got more of these mechanical yeah, motors in more, series, right? right? Okay. So, you know, essentially it's like, you know, you and me pulling on a rope and now you add five more of us behind it. We can pull and have a mm. uh, higher velocity mm. of shortening. But right. the other thing is it increases our excursion because we can shorten over a greater range because every single one of us um, is, you know, relatively speaking, right? We're all contributing to the shortening of the, of the myofilament. And so it's a really important, like for, for me as a, as a, as a performance person, these are fundamental ways that we can change how the muscle system works. And so that was, that was the sort of origins of, of me seeing that I, you know, obviously got a chance to see the experimental data and understand, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they've got all this stuff. Uh, and when did they, when did yeah. they figure this out? They were like, doing this. They um, I want to say, I don't know the year of the publication off the top of my head, but this would have been kind of early two thousands, I think is okay. when they were doing a lot of this research. And, okay. you know, cool. again, back to the whole impetus behind this, uh, to, to give you scale is that, you know, similar to how we are trying to find a unified theory of physics, right? So mm-hmm. how do you, is there something that can relate what happens on the very small quantum to what happens on earth, Newtonian mechanics, to what happens when we are talking speed of light theories of relativity, scientists are trying to get a unified field theory that helps kind of tie them all together in a very similar way. Walter's work is we don't know how we don't know why muscles behave the way they do when they are stretching. And so we don't have a theory that explains how the muscle behaves. We understand based on the fly, sliding filament theory how it behaves when they shorten 
And we can talk mm-hmm. about what happens when there's no length change based on some muscle properties. But when a muscle stretches, we don't really know how it works. And so he's trying to understand that and to pull this together. Me as a coach, wow, that's real interesting. But hey, how, do I, how would I shift this with training? And, and is that a feasible prospect? And if so, what would it mean for performance? That's what I care about. Um, mm, but yeah. but that's so, a, so, yeah. so when you say the muscle is lengthening, and this may seem like a stupid question, but I mean, because we're talking at the at the micro level here, but but I mean, does the actual entire muscle uh, lengthen? It couldn't, right? Like well, when you say lengthen, you mean you mean you're you're adding sarcomeres, but are is the is the muscle actually lengthening? And and is it just like a a small amount, but that's that's meaningful or what? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously this is on, you know, microscopic scales, right? So, right. I mean, you know, if you if you can imagine, um, you know, and, and I always try to put this into, into real anatomical terms, right? So that we can go from the very, very small scales that we are looking at with a myofibril to big scale, which would be, you know, human. Um, so not to confuse, I mean, obviously I say a lengthening contraction. What I mean is an eccentric muscle action, right? So basically you put a muscle right. under tension and you stretch it. So we know that muscles can get longer and shorter by virtue of the fact that it's a tissue. And if I, you know, if I, if I pull on a muscle, right. And, you know, a muscle contracts, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, a concentric muscle action, it can shorten. And so we understand that muscles can both, uh, actively, uh, lengthen and shorten, you know, so that's one piece. But the second thing is, do, do these fibers actually get physically longer? And, yeah, and that's this my is, question. yeah. And, and, and so when we look at this under a myofibril, what we see is you get more of these sarcomeres in series, right? So mm-hmm. you can imagine, you know, you've got uh, a certain segment here, like, you know, and, and this is very, very small scale, but you know, where you maybe have, you measure four or five of these in series under the same, you know, the same length, you now see that there's 10 or 12. And, and so the question then becomes anatomically, what does that mean? Um, and when we look at this uh, using ultrasound, um, it, it's, it is true that you can measure um, an actual increase in the fascicle length. So the fascicles, which are now the bundles of muscle fibers, if you look at them under ultrasound, let's say you're looking at the vastus lateralis muscle, you can measure, let's say that, you know, I'm talking anatomically here, if you think about your vastus lateralis muscle, um, you know, it's, it's got a, you know, an oblique insertion into its, its tendon, mm-hmm. right? It's a ponderosis. So it might be, let's say six centimeters long, and then you mm-hmm. undergo this type of training and, and you will, you will measure an increase in the length. So now maybe it's seven centimeters long. So it's presumably what's happened is you've actually increased that, that lengthen the, like hmm. an anatomical lengthening. I, I mean, I think we're still, there's still a but lot overall, of things. Yeah. But the length of the, of, of the of let's say you know the uh let's say it's your biceps okay your the actual length of the biceps may not be longer so these must overlap to some degree like the fascicles am i right in thinking that yeah yeah or- absolutely i mean you're you're right in thinking that i mean i think i i, I or do we I, know well, I mean, what we know is that these muscles are three di- and they're when we look under ultrasound, we're looking at a sort of two-dimensional rendering of this fiber, right? But okay. what we know is that these, you know, if you look at the actual anatomy in 3D, these things are not just straight lines. You know, they they actually have lots of twists ah, and curves to okay. them. So, you know, one, one example oh, okay. is I had a, one of my grad students who just, uh, Nate Morris, he just uh, defended his thesis last year 
did a, did some really nice studies where we were using extended field of view ultrasound. So now you've got an ultrasound camera that can sort of take and add on pieces uh, of the image to, to make it a bigger picture. Uh, because obviously, you know, you put a probe on a muscle, it's, that doesn't capture the whole length of these fascicles. They're much longer than the field of view of the probe, right? So you can use an extended field of view one where you can now measure these fascicles over a greater, um, okay. a greater, a greater visual field. Um, but one of the challenges we were looking at, we wanted to look at the architecture of the semitendinosus muscle after the surgeons go in, harvest this tendon to for, recon for reconstruct a torn ACL. Right. So they go in and they remove that tendon. And what we're interested in knowing is what does that do to the architecture of the muscle? Well, Nate and I went into the anatomy lab, you know, and, and because I don't need it at this point, he'd never worked on cadavers. It's one of the nice things about UFC is we get to work on cadavers with the students. So you get to really feel and see the tissues. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, it was interesting. When I we did that. I did that at uh, U of T as part of my, part of my phys ed degrees. We had four yeah. actual, it, it, it's, it's incredible. It's fascinating. Like, yeah. I like love you it. get such an insight and all we did was go in and look at them and play around with them. And sure. you know, I, I don't mean play around, but you know, like actually, you know, I know we what had you mean. Four different labs. Yeah. It, the, it, it's crazy how packed in everything is. That's, it totally, that's the thing that yeah. got to me, right? It's, like, it's yeah. just like how tight it is all it this. Is but anyway, all, it is your it, well, this is but. just it. Like we, we, we try to simplify it down to, you know, to these, to this notion that, you know, you I mean, this is where we ask the question, do, do these fascicles actually get longer? And, you know, based on experimental data, the answer is probably yes, but it's probably not as simple as imagining a string that just gets longer. Okay. It's, it's, you know, right. it's, it's obviously got curves and bends. Yeah. It's packed in. Yeah. We right. know that right. it's way more complex than just, you know. Right. But uh, the fact that it does get longer gives you better functionality. Is that the idea? Right? It does. I mean, it yeah, or, totally. Or in however you would measure that. Okay. So in terms of muscle architectural changes okay with resistance training so we just talked about the well we sort of talked about fiber cross-sectional area hey what, what, uh, by the way what's the difference between physiological cross-sectional area and increased fiber cross-sectional area or is it, i mean uh, or, or is this when you say fiber cross-sectional are you just being more specific uh, yeah i mean good good obviously good good questions uh because when we talk about the the physiological cross-sectional area we're talking about a perpendicular a, per a perpendicular um, slice right and so right. you know you can imagine because our muscles are not necessarily um all popping in a <laughs> they, they they have different orientations and angles right you can imagine that, you know, um, when we talk about the physiological cross-sectional area, we're talking about relative to that line of action, like where where are we slicing and, and taking oh, our measurements. So, okay. you know, I, I get it. Okay. Yeah. The, the physiological cross-sectional area is often used to um, to uh, to describe the relationship that the force generated by a muscle is proportional to its physiological cross-sectional area, meaning that, you know, we talk about the line of action of the muscle and the, 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 the cross-sectional area of that muscle. So, um, you know, <clears throat> from the standpoint of a fiber cross-sectional area to, you know, uh, imagine a, a muscle cross-sectional area, these, these things would just be different levels of, um, uh, in terms of the hierarchy of the tissue, just different levels it. of it, I right? Get it. No, I totally get it. I was, I was just assuming you were. No, they're they're sort of dip, totally different. Not totally, but they're sort of totally different things. Or one is 
sort of fits within the other. Right? Yeah, I mean, so sort the of. the fiber, <clears throat> the fiber cross sectional area. So we're adding more uh, contractile protein in para- parallel, right. so more actin, actin and myosin. And myosin. Right. As those fibers hypertrophy, you can imagine that the whole muscle belly itself right. is also okay. going to hypertrophy, and and that you know it would be. So where are we taking the measurement? At what scale are we talking about? The scale of the muscle, uh, the scale of the fiber. Um, you right. know, as being where, where the measurement might be taken. Yeah. So Stu's listening to this at this point and going, you're an idiot. You should have known that you should have figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, at some point we're going to have to roast him a little bit, but, oh, yeah. uh, I got to wait till I get inspired. Um, so, so, okay. So we talked about, yeah, those three things. So, and the angle of penation, that's the only other thing I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about. So, um, how does the angle of penation change under, under, uh, you know, with, with the resistance training? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, the, this is, uh, again, these, these, uh, like you actually talked about it in the course and I don't know whether I, I just couldn't understand it or, or what. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, so it's, it's, a when, when, when we measure it, so it's an obviously number one with a sp- specific type of, of muscle, right? So penate muscles like the vastus lateralis where they're so you know you've got your tendons and then the muscles are inserting at an angle to it right and so right. it's kind of not it's you know maybe not the most well, i was going to say efficient but that's the wrong word but you know you could imagine you know you're going to lose force right because you got you got your your your, te- your tendon your tendons are not in series with the fibers right they're the fibers are going into the tendon at an angle so when the right. muscle when the muscle contracts, you can imagine it kind of like what you see is you, you see you see this on ultrasound. So it looks like the the mm-hmm. the, um, the 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 aponeuroses are sort of sliding almost as as tension is transferred from the fibers obliquely into the aponeuroses into obviously then your patellar tendon which goes into your knee, uh, your 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 uh, shin your, your your tibia. But you can imagine that it's also kind of twisty, like in a three-dimensional space, it's not just doing this. It's like you can imagine right, it's right, twisting and coiling as as the muscle, um, you know, kind of twists to generate mm-hmm. uh, tension. Mm-hmm. Um, which and it then, will. Which it will. Unless, and then you, unless the points of insertion are exactly parallel to each other, which yeah. they never are. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. totally, right? So, you know, that's kind of... So that's, you know, or you can imagine an insertion. Sorry. Yeah, you got it. Right. So now it's, it's this complex anatomical structure. And then what we see is when you look at the angle, so you're measuring this, uh, this, this, this fascicle on ultrasound, um, and you're, and you've got, you're, you're viewing the two, uh, upon your of vastus lateralis, and you do a bunch of strength training. What we see is that the penation angle goes up. And so essentially they're, they're becoming more vertically tilted. Does that, is that a, a good enough image to relative kind of create that? to the relative to the to the yeah I get yeah it. and no, so it almost is like if you thought about it you'd be like oh that seems like it would actually you'd almost lose more mm-hmm. you'd actually lose more okay I'm using really simplistic terms but you're losing more force because now you're or or a mechanical advantage mechanical exactly. advantage right yeah except right. there's a better way better word. <clears throat> So you're losing your mechanical advantage, but but this is the whole point: is that as the as the fibers are hypertrophying, right, and you're getting more contractile proteins in 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 parallel, it's changing the anatomy of how those fibers insert into 
the aponeurosis. So wow. it's basically, wow. you know, you're, okay. you're, you're hypertrophying it. And, and so the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the angle's increasing. So it's becoming more vertical. You're losing some mechanical advantage possibly, but you're gaining physiological cross-sectional area. So you're putting more horsepower, you're putting more anatomical horsepower into the system. And we also have to remember that it's not just a 2d thing. It's a 3d thing. And these things are also having some rotational, uh, components when, when mm-hmm. like the, 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 the fascicles are exerting not just a linear uh, force onto the aponeurosis, they're twisting as they also generate, uh, you know, generate tension. And so at the end of the day, even though what sort of logically, if you think about it, you're like, wow, you sounds like you're losing mechanical advantage. Your cross-sectional area is going up, which means you got more contractile protein, which means you can generate more force. And we have to remember that it's not just a 2D image. It's uh, there's actually a rotational component to the to the to how this whole system works. Right. And consequently, pination angle is going up, but you're having an overall yeah. increase in in, okay. in force generating capacity. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that was a, a good answer to a to a tough sort of off the cuff question, man. Because I didn't uh, that that that's when I didn't throw it. Uh, throw it. Hey, just one. Uh, I really want to get into fatigue and adaptation and talk and and I want to uh, in with a uh, a real world question in terms of my programming. Um, but before I do it, last question on this. Um, so nutrition. Okay. So you talk a little bit in uh, in this first course when you're talking about the you know this deep dive in a muscle hypertrophy, which we just touched on you talk about nutrition uh, being very important that way and you know people say that at a you know uh, trainers and that everybody talks about that but you're talking about this at a very specific level so where like you know and I don't want to get too deep into it but where are we with with nutrition for people that are trying to not maybe not just build hypertrophy but increase strength and power like what you know because there's so much out there right there's just so much bullshit out there and i and i've had i've worked with i've worked with two of the best performance nutritionists uh in the world uh, and one of them turns out to be a cousin of mine we found out on 23 and me later get out <laughs> I mean, huh. guy named matt lavelle at, at my center in loughborough i worked with the guy for four years and I don't know who he's working with now. He's working with some national team in Britain. But uh, and uh, we both did 23andMe, and uh, his name came up as uh, he's like my second cousin or third cousin or what? something. I'm like, yeah, I'm not kidding, man. I'm like, I sent him a message. I'm like, Matt, you you and I are related. Like, like re- like we share like five percent DNA or something like that. It's crazy. Holy. It's crazy. Yeah, and I never we never knew it. You know. Anyways. And the other guy is uh, is a Glenn Kearney. You know, I didn't work a lot directly with with Glenn, but he was he worked with Stu down in down in uh, and Stu and Dan and the boys down down at Lee Valley. So where where you know so I, you know I've heard a lot of different things, and those are you know Matt and Glenn are my go to guys if I got a question. But where but where are we with it? Like in a nutshell, like yeah. I mean, you know it's it's obviously protein. It's you know you want to up your protein intake, or is, is it that simple, or is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, Derek. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that you know if there's one area that I am very very skeptical with, it's the world of nutrition, just because. Um, 
from my perspective, nutrition is uh, we we are we are we are inundated by yeah business opportunity. Slide. Yeah, it's just it's too yeah. much. It's business opportunities yeah. and all this stuff yeah. that I, I I really I really struggle to go beyond the basics. And if anything, as I've moved more and more in my career, I'm more and more basic with how I see it. Um, what I, what I can say based, and this is not my area, so I would defer to, to some of my friends to have, you know, much more in-depth, um, you know, conversation about it, but what do we know? We know that, um, we know that there's an optimal amount of protein that, that can, that, that is needed, required to maximize protein synthesis. We know that this uh, optimal amount based on kind of average healthy individuals, males uh, that are trained in individuals, it's not, you know, 100 grams of protein that there's a saturation point that's probably, mm -hmm. I'm just going to be give a range, probably between 20 and 40 grams, probably more like 20 to 30 grams, but let's just be generous there. Um, we uh, per serving, like per, 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 serving. per, okay. per, per serving of protein. So if you're, you know, if in a single setting you're, you're ingesting a hundred grams of protein that your body's likely not able to assimilate that and to absorb it. Of course. Um, we know that the, the repair process after a resistance training bout is not happening, you know, just in that small window after a, after a session. Uh, although we do know that if you take protein immediately in and around that workout, that it is synergistic in terms of a small, but probably significant uh, increase in protein synthesis overall, protein balance overall, which is important for uh, adaptation. Um, that 24-hour period is far more important than just that what's happening around the workout. So obviously that just speaks mm. to the idea of regular, you know, and good mm. nutrition overall. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, and we know that, you know, we know that it's important, right. And we know that, you know, we know that that's something we need to attend to some new research coming out that seems to suggest that there's, um, I haven't looked at this paper super closely, but this seems to suggest that whether you're talking about, you know, a veg, veg uh, you know, more, um, a, a non meat, non dairy source of protein, like, uh, you know, vegetarian like a, sources that, right, that they're, right. they're, that they're, protein or they're, yeah, apparently, you know, new data suggesting that on a, on an adaptation level, they're relatively equivalent. And I will just mm. end by saying this is that that's going to fuck up a lot of people. Yeah. But here's the thing that I always come <laughs> back to, right? So it, it, my brain is always working. So if I see some basic science where somebody's gone in and they, you know, again, this, the process by which they do this. Um, is they are essentially marking, marking, marking proteins to understand what that's, that uh, balance is, right? So we're looking at protein synthesis versus degradation and, and looking at the, 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 the protein synthetic rate. So what's happening at the muscle level, right? When, 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 we're, when we're undergoing training and, and obviously these are very, very basic studies that are, um, or basic science studies that you know, the question may come up into the person listening, um, or if you're reading this is, okay, that's great that you're measuring this at this sort of more basic level, but what happens at the whole body level? So what happens at the big picture, which is where we often care about. And I don't know, my observation is that, you know, I've seen, um, you know, you, I guess the data would suggest this and, and I've observed it too anecdotally where, you know, athletes, as long as they're eating sufficient amounts and they're getting protein and they're, you know, they're, they're not in sort of an energy deficit that generally speaking, their bodies work pretty freaking well and they adapt well and things go well. And so I, 
I'm of the mind, Derek, that like, I, 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 I don't, I'm not, um, yeah, this is this. I'm taking off my scientist hat here, and I'm just I think putting you on and I my, are on the exact same page here. Keep, but I, I'm a big believer, keeping it simple. I'm a big believer. I'm not a fan of intermittent fasting. I'm. A, I think that you know, in some settings, that works well. But if you're talking about an athlete population, if you're talking about somebody who just you know can 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 manage sort of eating throughout the day, to me, you know, regular servings of protein that are in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 grams, let's say five times a day. So you're uh, you know, kind of getting that throughout your day and you're doing that consistently and your energy balance is good and you're eating, you know, in my opinion, you know, the, the, the types of, of, uh, nutrients that you need from food. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're, I think it's, I think we're checking yeah, out the totally. bases. Totally. That's, that's my, yeah, yeah, what, totally. what, 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 tell me about yeah. what you're you, you, like, I'm just curious. I, I don't want to put this I back think? on you. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, you mentioned two okay. nutritionists that I don't know where, where are their minds at? What, what are they, were they, yeah, where, I mean, you know, Guys like that are in a tough situation, I think, you know, because yeah. they're hired to make very specific and direct recommendations sure. on something like that. And I think deep down they believe exactly what we do. Yeah. Um, but they are trying to be very SWAT in their application sure. and they do things. But but my question is, which is gonna be a question that's gonna come up when we with you when we talk about monitoring athletes, is how the fuck do you know? Like yeah. how like like, how do you know any any of these little interventions are actually making a difference? And how do you, you know, I mean, it's so difficult because it's like yeah. the conversation Stu and I had about inputs to training program. The more inputs yeah. you have, the the harder it is to determine what did what, right? Like what, what worked and what didn't. And I look at it this way. So I'm, I talked about those three athletes, okay? Uh, earlier on, Gary, Dylan, and Shane, Nimi, okay? <clears throat> Those are the three big ones I had when I worked in Camloose that went on to do well. They had three distinct eating patterns, okay? Uh, at the bottom end was Shane, who ate horribly, like just horribly. Would never would, He used to brag he never ate a vegetable. You know, just, you know, that's it, right? Gary was kind of in the middle. Dylan ate like a champ. Like Dylan's favorite thing was his favorite meal. And we're talking like 14, 15, 16 years old was to get a huge bowl, stainless steel bowl, fill it full of greens, meat, you know, whatever, throw a bunch of, as much as he could, stir it all up and just chow it all down. Right. Dylan never got sick ever. Like just never happened. Train harder than anybody. Okay. Recovered from workouts, as well or better than anybody, any athlete I've ever coached. Gary was in the middle. Gary was like, could tolerate, you know, a a huge, heavy amount of training, but, you know, I had to be very careful with him because he would, uh, you know, at times he, he, he could, he could get under, you know, and you could see it in him and his energy level wasn't quite as good. Generally speaking. Now, later on in his career, when he went, uh, went to train with Wynn down in, in, I mean, he was a freaking champ at that point. I mean, he went way beyond Dylan, way beyond, and never had any issues after that. Never, and we never had any injury issues, blah, blah. Shane, who was arguably the most talented out of the three, was sick. I am not exaggerating when I tell you he was sick once a month. Yeah, He was constantly sick. He was just constantly... You know, I was constantly battling. And at one point, I forget who I talked to. This is before I ever knew anybody that knew anything. Oh, you know who it was? It was Mike Smith. Oh. 
in, in Calgary, who's a yeah. very good friend of mine. And he, he, he recommended some sea salts. This is back way back. This is, we're talking 95, the same time period, 95, yeah. 96. So I got, I could, I could not convince Shane to eat anything. And I wasn't going to go that far out of my way to try either. Right. I'm like, fuck, I got better things, you know, but we got him on sea salts, which is high dosages of vitamin C. And that helped a bit. Like hmm. there was a noticeable difference only in terms of how often he got sick. Hmm. But generally speaking for, you know, and, and I always just refer to that. And, and, you know, I work mostly with, you know, developmental athletes these days. So I get these questions from parents and I just say, yeah. look, you know, like just have them eat well, but then that's changing too, because mm. everyone's idea of eating well is a little different now. And, yeah. and it's, but, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, but anyways, I, uh, I think, you, you know, know, I think, I think it's a, you know, I, I just sort of reflecting on this and, and uh, I think, I think the challenge is it's still pretty, basic to me you know you have you have a caloric intake you got a caloric expenditure and there are things that you need to put in your body that are important for your body that your body can't make itself and at the end of the day if you can get that from food sources and and do it in a in a way that um you know allows you to eat your food like you tend tended to do and and you subscribe to sort of just being sensible about those two other factors in my mind you have the big boxes ticked and um and and i would say the final thing is i'm not i'm not anti-supplement because i think there are cases where athletes uh you know i'm working with an athlete who's a a ski racer and uh you know they're they're uh they're on the hill for hours and hours a day one of the big struggles this year for this person was you know being able to get enough nutrients on the hill right like they it's just impossible right and you can't you can't pack enough snacks right although you can no, pack no, some sure. but but at the end of the day you know that that person needs to you know supplement a bit right and but yeah. you know what they also I'm sorry man they can take if, if you're not if you're not celiac and and you're and you're out on the hill doing this stuff Dude, you can have a peanut butter sandwich. Like, this is perfectly yeah, yeah. fine. Like, this yeah. notion that you, like, oh, God, it's a peanut butter sandwich. That's not a, like, I've I've seen it over the years where we try to complicate this. And I hear people, like, what did I read the other day? Someone, I, I, it was, I can't remember where I saw this on, on some social media post that the foods that cause inflammation, and, and in this case, the foods that cause inflammation are, you know, they were talking about vegetables. So you don't, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat peppers. Don't eat tomatoes. Uh, I can't remember what else is on the list. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. I'm like, you know what? Like, show me some data, mm-hmm. show me some data, show totally. me some evidence and I'll yeah. believe it. But yeah. just because someone's an expert with PhD after their name or MD after their name, they're trying to make a buck just like everybody else. Yeah. And they might have yeah. something that works but i guarantee you it works on the basics it's not working on anything magical and i think that we spread so much more poison into people's heads about this and i'm open show me some data and i will i will see it show me enough data yeah derek i'll give you i have a personal sorry i'm not i'm not trying to ramble here but you got me going a little bit personal experience i just got diagnosed with celiac oh wow what i'm like oh i mean it's a it's a bit of a bummer but like I, you know, I, I mean, I, I was, I was a bit, I, I was a bit ignorant. Like I used to be people who say, oh, I don't eat gluten and I don't do this and I don't do that. I was a little bit ignorant and I, and I used to say, oh, come on, give me a break. And, and now that I'm celiac and I honestly, I, I thought I felt fine. 
I think I did feel fine. I mean, I don't have any, I, I get my blood work done once a year. I don't have any signs of malabsorption. Um, generally, I feel pretty good, but I just sort of ran into a bit of a pinch where, um, you know, my body was not feeling so great in the past month and I was having some some issues. Yeah, it turns out that's what it is. And I'm realizing now it's underdiagnosed. You know, they say it's about 10% of the population uh, has potentially this and, you know, it's underdiagnosed. And I'm like, well, you know what? If you're that, your body, if you take in mm-hmm. gluten and you're a celiac, your body is going to attack. You're going to have totally. an inflammatory yeah, yeah, response yeah. and it's going to blow yeah. your tummy up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm completely open to new data and new things that, that, that come along that change how we think about things, but man, I'm skeptical and I would just, you know, I am skeptical. You know, I, I step back, I look at the big picture. I look at it, you know, a million years of evolution. You know, I hear all kinds of anecdotes that people have and justifications for how they eat and what they do. I've seen the same diets come and go five times, the same strategies come and go five times the same, you know, and at the end of the day, I still come back to the same thing. I try to eat every couple hours and encourage my athletes to every couple hours, get a serving of protein at each meal, make sure they're taking care of their 24 hour nutrition, not just what happens around their workout. If at all possible, get it from good food. So every time you sit down and you look at your plate, you got some type of whole grain, you got lots of veggies and a serving of protein, and you try to make that protein as bioavailable as possible. Although evidence would suggest now that that's not even maybe that important. Interesting. Yeah. Hey man, at the end of the day, I think we're hitting the big boxes. And and I think yeah, that's yeah, what totally. most of the great athletes I know, that's what they did. Yeah. And most yeah. of the time yeah. when they started going after the minutia and drilling down on fad diets and fad things, they got obsessed, stressed, over the top, and and I, I observed the same thing as you. I don't think it helped their performance, even if it was a yeah. I, yeah. I I do think I do. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you go to the extreme, I do think in certain events, like in in if we're talking track and field, like if you're you know high level endurance athletes, athletes that do need to manage their weight. Agreed. You know, females in uh, in some of the you know jumping events. Um, and in middle, middle and long distance running that, yeah. you know, they're, they, they definitely have to take their nutrition to another level, but Agreed. again, but they're, but that overarching, um, you know, common sense sort of umbrella yeah. that should sit over everything is really important. Right. And, and, and they can get, you know, but, um, you know, because, uh, you know, because we're, we're talking there, you know, small amounts of weight gain and things like that can sure. can be a real issue but yeah I mean, and, and that's even you know it, it, sorry and i just want to make this point here too because i think this is important for <clears throat> my perspective on this is the one thing i have been reading up on a lot more is relative relative energy deficiency in sport uh reds is a real thing um and it's obviously this is the tricky thing when you're in a weight class sport or you're in a sport where power to mass ratio is absolutely essential you can get there in probably a, a healthier way or in a really bad way. And what we're seeing more and more and more are athletes that are getting to it from a bad way, i.e. they're chronically energy deficient. And when you get down that slippery slope where you are chronically energy deficient and your body starts getting endocrine disturbances and injuries start to creep in, and your, your energy levels are changing. And even you start to see sometimes the opposite. You're losing lean body mass, you know, even though you're eating so little. Um, what we're seeing is that there are these, um, just let's just say, uh, clinical markers of REDS that are very alarming. 
And no doubt when you put an athlete like that in the hands of a qualified sport nutritionist dietitian who understands how to use food in a very, very um, specific way to ensure that energy balance is good while still achieving the performance outcome, it requires a crap ton of expertise. And I totally agree with you, Derek, that okay, sports like sports like endurance sport, you know, jumpers, um, you know, all of these scenarios require expertise. And it is not as simple as just having somebody drop in with a fad diet. I think you really need a periodized nutrition oh, plan. Totally. And I'm 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 a I'm a thousand percent in support of that. I'm just not in support of the Instagram person who puts out a post that you should avoid tomatoes and peppers and and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you should do that you <laughs> yeah. should say hey look at me yeah. I got I got to five percent body fat and intermittent intermittent fasting protocol which might have you know whatever I'm not bashing IF but um, you know at the well, end of the day there, and there there is one subgroup where the intermittent fasting works very very well and that is the um, slob coach agreed uh, 50 to 55 year, agreed. year old yeah you can actually do a lot with intermittent fasting you as, can do a ton. Yeah, a ton yeah hey, i agree I, See, that's a that's a perfect application of good science to the right population but when you got yeah. i guess where my beef comes in derek is when you got a young athlete who's got their yeah. whole career ahead of them and they've yeah. been sort of fed oh, this I, garbage and I then they never let an athlete intermittent fast and then they yeah but then they crater yeah they crater and then you know i just see the aftermath which is yeah. i've seen athletes ruin two years of their career because of bad nutritional advice yeah, yeah. and so we so, need yeah. i i'm i mean geez man we need to have good sound nutritional advice yeah. with somebody who gets how to periodize this just how you and i are periodizing training loads and sequencing and all this stuff um, you know, we need, we need the same thing on the nutrition side and, and, uh, you know, it's gotta be good advice from my end. So I'm skeptical of a lot of the crap, but I, yeah, I yeah, fully totally. believe in, in getting good support yeah. for athletes. Hey, let's, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm paying, I'm looking at the time here. I don't want to, I don't want to go any longer. I, I know I got you for two hours and if you and I, it's, it's hard to, uh, to, to find the time to, to do this. So I, I want to get into this last, uh, well, I want to get into a discussion on low versus high frequency fatigue, because you talk a lot about that in the first course. And, and it really, I think, um, it really sort of fits in, you know, it's not something I ever heard of either. Like, but I, but I intuitively understood it because course, it's yeah. exactly what, what I do. It's exactly what we do in the Bonner Chuck system for at least for throwers okay yeah. which is so 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 let me just pose this question to you and we can do it in the context of this low versus high uh frequency fatigue so um and and i'm not going to get too deep into this because i've talked so much about the bonner truck system on the podcast but for those people that don't know anything about it so essentially the key thing with us is that we don't uh, wave load volume and intensity. That means that the loading volume uh, exercises and intensities don't change throughout uh, a long-term cycle, which we call a PDSF, but it's basically like a, a meso or macro cycle. It's a combination. Okay. So all that means is this, is that um, if you look at a workout, okay, a training unit, a session, whatever you want to call it, we go, uh, if, you know, we, if, if you were to look at a 
training session at the beginning of say a six week PDSF or, you know, long-term cycle, and you were to come back 50 sessions later and look at, say, if you're doing it 10 times a week for five weeks, and you were to look at the, the workout, observe the athlete at workout, you would see identically the same thing. Nothing changes. So we don't change the, we don't change the, uh, like we don't wave load the, the loads. There's no rest recovery weeks. There's a hard, easy medium weeks. It's just, it's like, I call it, it's like Chinese water torture where you, the, it's the same drop going over and over and over again. And in heavy throws, we can do, we can actually do it with only one session that we would repeat eight to 10 times in other, most other sports and events, you can't do that because you need more time between the specific workloads. So you might, so you, so you would use maybe three or four, two, three or four different training units and each one would be different, right? According to whatever you need to do. Uh, one might be a recovery, whatever. But those four, would you would always do them in order. You would just roll them over and they would never change. If you've ever... If you've ever studied Dan Paff's rollover um, sprint cycle that he does, his rollover maintenance cycle, it's the same sort of idea. He has three workouts. It's for athletes when they're traveling or they're in a competitive phase, and the, there's just some simple rules. You never do them out of order. You do them when when you can. You know, when these are athletes traveling around, going from meet to meet and stuff like that. Okay, so you, that's the basic setup. Okay, but in the heavy throw, so for instance. Uh, what I was doing recently with an athlete I was coaching who was a hammer thrower is I gave her one program, which I sent the, the sample up to, to you. And so it's a, it's a very high complex setup. So in other words, that one workout, that's all we do is one workout. We do it twice a day, uh, like four to eight, four, you know, eight to eight to 10 times a week. Okay. Let's say. Uh, well, not let's say that's what we did. And um, in that workout is a set amount of throws, say, she, I think she had 24 throws. Uh, then we would have a special exercise, special throw. Then we would go into the weight room. Okay. And, uh, it, you know, this is, I'm following Bondarchuk's hierarchy going from specific down to general, uh, his exercise classification hierarchy. Um, SPE, which is specific preparation exercises, which are essentially lifting, okay? And then uh, we'd follow, we'd end it, we'd end the workout, or we did end the workout with a, with a, a circuit of ancillary strength exercises, like twisting. It's mostly core, back, and, you know, there's no, there's no uh, global strength abilities, right? That's what the SPE is. So, okay, so that's the setup. Now, it it's that's that's how the system works and we we just keep rolling that over and we're measuring the throws and i'm measuring bar velocities because remember that the weights that i choose although i may have a wave in the workout there may be a wave load in the workout there's no wave loading from session to session so it's, right. we just keep repeating the same thing so in this one she had um a dynamic uh, half squat um, where I'd have a box and a pad on it and she'd go down, touch the button, come up as fast as she can and I'd measure the bar speed. Rather than change the weight to stay within a specific zone uh, of speed, I just pick a zone that I, that I know. I pick, we, in the very first workout, we determine a weight, a load 
that is just under the zone I want to be in. And over the course of the PDSF, I would expect her that she, her job is only to move it faster. She had three different weights. Okay. So you get the setup. So, um, and you know, and I found over and over and over again, just when we do this, it sounds crazy, but when we do this, we see, I showed you, I sent you the charts. There's quite a bit of growth in the, in the throws. Um, and usually those, the, the, what the bar speeds, depending on the exercise will mimic that it will parallel it. Okay. That doesn't mean transfer. It just means that they are both growing at the same time as the throwing distances get better and better throughout the long-term cycle. So do, so does the speed of the bar that of these, these static, well, static's probably a misleading word of these, of this workout that is not changing. It's the same thing day to day. Okay. Now you can imagine doing something that intensive because we're, we're, you know, I go said this often, I tend to go higher up the force velocity curve than Bondarchuk does. He's famous for not, not loading athletes very much in the weight room. I like to go a little higher up. I will even go into max strength sometimes, but I got to be super careful of the loading, right? Okay, because we're doing it. I mean, you know, if you're going to do max strength, uh, let's, let's not go there. Let's say, like, if you're going to do what, what, what I did with this girl, which is, I would say, uh, with, with average velocity, the zone I wanted her to go through in this was um, 0.8 meters per second to 1.0. Um, I did it with another athlete uh, a couple of years ago with a dynamic half squat. This guy was uh, a hammer thrower, very strong. Uh, he was pushing uh, probably close to 300 pounds, 130 kilos, 140 kilos, something like that. And he did exactly that. Start, we, 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 he had probably a 200 kilo P, uh, one arm M at the time. Anyways, and you know, so w- the first day we just keep loading weight. When I, when I, when we get to a, a load, it's it's a bit of a judgment. I gotta, you know, we use the we use the push device. Um, I'm looking for a weight around 0.75, and then okay, that's our weight. I will design the workout for the remaining sessions around that the load. And his job is just to move it as fast as he can every just get better and better and better right and of course there's up and down there's variation within the reaction so you but you can imagine doing that at that zone on the force velocity curve which i guess would call you would generally call strength speed um doing that eight times a week is pretty difficult yeah yeah. seriously (laughs) and it sounds crazy but they just get better like they just get better if you know, if, if I manage those loads properly, the problem is, is that, you know, especially with new athletes, if you're not familiar with it, like that could be really difficult, right? It could be really, you know, determining that load because I'm really on the edge. So, so I'm really, you know, I have to be, because we are so dense and we don't have to go eight to 10 times a week, but, and I won't get into why we do because it, it, essentially what it is is that you know the more dense we can expose an athlete to the stimulus the faster they come into peak condition but there's there's you know you can't do it like you can't do it with a sprinter because they can't sprint 10 times a week right so anyways um 
And because we complex everything, so we do everything in the same unit, training unit, that presents certain challenges. So, and I know this is probably not a method you would ever use with, with some of your athletes, although some of the principles, I think, are really good food for thought. But what are your thoughts on that in terms of how, you know, like, you know, like, what do you think about that in terms of how to load? Because what the, the way I've approached it is I usually don't go more than two or three sets. The first two, quite frankly, are almost warm. They're not warm up, but they're not the real heavy load. It's usually the last set or two where mm -hmm. they're going to, that's the weight they're going to be in that zone. And yeah. they are able to come back and do it twice a day yeah, yeah. and day in and day out. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Derek, the, what you just described to me uh, reminds me of a conversation that I had with a, a, a retired exercise physiology professor at the University of Calgary, and I'm a guy named Brian McIntosh. And uh, at this point, I'm doing, uh, uh, I can't remember what it was, a, it was a graduate course in muscle physiology with him, and we were sort of having an off, uh, sort of off-class chat about periodization. And he said you realize there's no evidence for periodization. And yeah. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> at this point, I'm at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm like, uh, you know, second year masters of science student. It's like probably 2001. I've been reading every periodization textbook known to man, you know, um, it's like, there's, there's no evidence for that. He's like, this explain is really it. where yeah. I wanted to go with this. Yeah, he's yes. like, explain it to me. Explain it to me at a physiological level. And this is him talking to me. Uh, explain it at a physiological level why you would need to periodize a stimulus. And he said, uh, sorry, this is a tongue, tongue twister. Cells see signals. Cells see signals. So a cell, let's just say that is one target of our training stimulus, as is the nervous system and everything. It's not a I'm not trying to be a reductionist. There's, there's our little dig for Stu, right? Like Stu. Stu. Yeah. Stu's like, he's such a reductionist. He's, so, he's such a reductionist, you know? Such always, a reducer. Yeah, yeah. Just always yeah, down to like the nitty gritty. God. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it makes him sound smart, right? Yeah, that's, sure. That's why he does it. It throws out big words and big concepts yeah, and yeah. Tweets it, out the big words. He, he tweets out even bigger words. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, and then he calls Just, me. Yeah. Then he texts me to be like, did, did, "Did that make sense? What what what, what, what did, did this?" Yeah, exactly. Does he? Does he? Does I knew know? it. Does anybody? Does yeah. Oh my so. god! Did I say that right? Oh my god! Yeah. You should, yeah, and, and every time you should reply for what? There's what are you no doing, man? To suggest what are you that. Doing, yeah. man. Yeah. No. But so, sorry. I digress. Cell C signals, right? So he, what he was saying was, physiologically, maybe about the only signal that we need is some level of progressive overload. So, you know, as a, as you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being reductionist here, but let's just say, you know, a cell sees a signal, the signal tells the cell to adapt and do something right. And, and as the cell adapts, it becomes more resilient and robust against the stress. And so you, you need to periodically uh, maybe increase the stress in some way, right? And what you're describing to me is that you have, you know, you have a process by which you apply a stress over time in such a way that the cell is continuing. And again, it's not the cell, it's the human. The human is continuing to adapt to the, the stress. The organism, yeah. The organism yeah. adapting to the stress. And what's your indicator? 
Well, because you can see that the organism is becoming more robust by virtue of the fact that performance is going up, speed is going up. You know, all of these things are increasing as the as the organism adapts to the stress. And, you know, I remember sitting and having him challenge me on my views because at this point I got, you know, all kinds of concepts in my head about periodization. And he's like, go show me the paper. Show me the evidence. Show me the evidence that yeah. you need to do this yeah. exactly. to be able to achieve the outcome. Well, and, and, you know, you go and you read. And, and honestly, most of the concepts are are just that they're concepts and uh dan dan they are they are what coaching what coaches were doing when matt viev first initially you know initially started to put all this together i I mean i mean listen it makes sense right Mm -hmm. i mean if 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 you look at it from you know the the sort of general uh concept uh, well maybe even general adaptation response i guess but i I mean let's go let's make it even more uh layman right like if you look at it from the the idea of base or a foundation of a house it all makes perfect sense but Mm -hmm. you're right there's no there's no there's no proof to it right this is these a lot of this stuff is is just stuff that um that's what coaches were doing at the time and mafia has just sort of formally put it together yeah. And you know, Derek, where, so in my progression of thinking on this topic, um, so I got Brian McIntosh, who, who's the f- exercise physiologist who he's like, you, and, and, and sorry, I say exercise physiologist. He is an exercise physiologist, but he was a muscle physiologist. What Brian studied, he's authored textbooks on muscle physiology. So I, he's another guy over the years that I tried to pick as much from his brain as I could. Um, but at the end of the day, he's like, there is no robust scientific evidence to suggest that periodization is a big effect. And this is the key thing, you know, a big effect on performance. It is a concept that we use. And at the end of the day, he's like, physiologically, cells see sig- muscle cells see signals. So you are signaling the muscle to do something and you don't need to periodize that with a heavy day and a light day to accomplish that training effect. Yeah, He's like, yeah, that, exactly. that, that, that's not what the cell needs. And it, it's interesting. So, okay, you got that. Simultaneously around this time period, I'm down with Stu in Texas and visiting Dan and Dan floats me onto the Verkashansky paper, The End of Periodization, which was another another big like I I've got that paper I use it in, as part of my my uh, my 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 course actually on the my my online coach education program, the periodization section I start with Yuri Verkashansky's paper where he starts to point out the conceptual problems with classic periodization models like Matvayev's model. And so he starts saying, you know, it's number one, it's not based on biology. Number two, it's not based on the demands of, um, of current competition where athletes need to be good almost year round. Third, it doesn't take advantage of new and emerging science. And one of the big things that he says is that a lot of it are these logical constructs. So we'll use analogies like, well, dude, how high could you build a, you know, if you want to build a big house, you got to have a big foundation. You know, like we, we yeah, use these yeah, comparatives yeah. to try and, yeah. and, you know, and then you might hear Dan say, yeah, that's interesting, but a work capacity of what? Because next thing you know, you got 
some coach who's coaching a sprinter who has them go do five hour bike rides to build their aerobic capacity. And you're like, well, dude, you're missing the, you're missing the point here. Like what, what, what are, what are we trying to accomplish? And so as you, as you really start to break this down, and I think this is probably in our next talk, we should really dive into this, but that is the, that was the, that was the other one. And then this is the final clincher for me, uh, Derek, is that at this point in time, I got Brian McIntosh in my ear uh, about this. And I'm like, holy cow, I never thought about it that way. From a physiological perspective, cells see signals, and there's really no evidence that cells need periodization to, to respond. Number two, uh, I've got Dan floating me, me this paper of uh, the end of periodization by by Yuri Verkashansky, which I read thousands of times and, and really was like, wow, this is earth shattering. And third, I emailed Yuri Verkashansky. And I went on a limb. And at this point, I was trying to understand his conjugate method and trying to learn more because I, I was really sparked by how he was thinking about the problem. I emailed him and I got a response. And I specifically uh, have saved that email. And I've had that uh, email be my beacon for the fact that the concepts we learn in these textbooks on periodization are not always what they seem. And these are held to be true and I will go back to your point is I think that what you're describing to me is very much a, um, it, to me, it sounds very consistent with all three of those pieces of information that I gathered early along the way. And that's why I've always been really curious about how you approach things, Derek. I remember you calling me back in the day you had, you were working with a short track speed skater and you said, Hey Matt, geez, I've never worked with a short track speed skater and I'd really like you to help me explain like, what should I do? I can't remember what your, your way you opened it up. And I remember we were, we started talking and I was like, Derek, I really, I was like, I really think you just like, you shouldn't listen to me on this. And I remember you just were like, cause, cause you were describing well, what it to you me. said to me, well, I, I totally remember that. What you said to me was you, I, I asked you, I said, uh, you know, I don't know, like, you know, how do short track speed skaters set up their training that and your it. response was basically don't follow that, that just <laughs> just just do what you're just just you know go with your go with your educated ignorance because yeah. you know uh it's you know and i was like yeah okay that's exactly <laughs> well that, back that's to what i do back you know. to training inputs this is what you said to me you were like you were like because if i try to do too much here i won't know what's working and what's not and yeah. so I remember you were like, so again, going back to this, you were like, well, this is what they need to do. Here are the, I mean, again, illustrative language. It could have been one session. It could have been three. I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. the specifics. Let's just say it was three. Here are the three sessions I want to apply in this order throughout a training cycle. I'm going to start here and I'm going to see how she reacts and then I'm going to add one thing in or take one thing out so I can understand what's going on physiologically, biomechanically, neurally with the organism, right? Systems approach. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, Derek is so right about this. And I look at the periodization schemes that I had seen been derived for speed skaters because uh, I was working heavily in the sport over, you know, 15 years at that time. And I was, I was always like, geez, I wish somebody would have the guts to try something different here because I don't know that this process is working. Are we, are we causing a performance improvement or are athletes getting a little bit better despite what we're doing? Um, well, anyway, to me, it's interesting. Okay, so, so yeah, so here's the thing, right? Like 
So I think, like, I should say this. This idea of doing everything in one session and only doing that one session, that's a very specific method within Bonderchuk's entire system and entire uh, 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 paradigm or concept of how training should be, okay? So if you look at his periodization books, there's actually 16 different methods in the first book alone, mm-hmm. of which what I'm describing to you is only one. Right. But it's the one that you can do in throws, in the heavy throws, not so much javelin, but in the heavy throws because – um, be- because you, because you can just get away with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can do it in any other sport. You just have to have more programs. He's not saying that you should never change. Sure. The, the, that's not the, and that's where everybody gets, that's where everybody screws up with this. They think, Oh my God, there cannot be a change. What he's saying is there's actually an, the, the next method, mo- most specific method is called the variation method, which is the exact same of what I described, except you do change everything every two weeks. Okay. Mm. Or, you know, really you would use a, a, a number of sessions is what I would do. But when you're talking, when you're trying to send the message out across all sports, it's about every two weeks you would have the change. The reason why you pick one over the other comes down to how you comes down to adaptation right because what he has found is that when you when you take a thrower and you give them the one let's look at the let's call the training unit that training program let's that's the stimulus okay he doesn't look at it as all separate he looks at that program as one stimulus when you give an athlete the one stimulus and you go over and over and over and over and over again and you measure the you measure the you know their their reaction Okay, which is a whole other discussion. But anyways, when and they reach peak, it reach peak condition. It takes about forty to fifty sessions. Around he says always around fifty. And I've, you know, and it took me years to to sort of meet that out. And over the last few years, I've I've been like, you know, yeah, that's about what it takes. Around they start coming into peak condition around thirty six. 35 to 40 and then they start going and then they uh and then they climb for a bit but then once they hit the peak the peak you have to change everything the only difference between a complex and say a variation where you're changing it every two weeks is that for is that it takes that peak comes longer it takes just takes longer that's all Mm -hmm. but you know but for whatever reason you may want to do that right for whatever reason as a, as a strength and conditioning expert, you may say, okay, I don't want to do the same thing day in and day out. I want, you know, I, 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 I do want to change every, every two weeks. The message in it is that he controls the change. It's a wholesale change. Usually, well, that, that also depends. If there is a stage method that he has. I mean, he just, you know, and to him, it's not, he doesn't put a value on block or stage there's a combination there's variation or he he just says look you use whatever one you want what i'm telling you is that the more towards a strict complex method you use where you don't change anything until peak condition the faster they come into peak condition gotcha and the more peak conditions in a in a given period of time the more long-term growth the athlete has because you know when an athlete comes in is peaking they're in a very special state, right? They're in yeah. a very, you know, and and the more the more you 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 do that, they they grow faster, and that's the whole yeah. point of the whole thing, right? So it comes down to this. 
this whole idea of adaptation. And I, and you know, I mean, before I ever did this, I would, I would, I would have said, you're crazy to try yeah. this. Like, I, yeah. you know, that's, that's what I would have said, but having done it and seeing if it's done right. And if you, if you, this is, you know, if you find that sweet spot in load, that, that low, uh, sorry, high frequency, um, um, loading, which is what we do. Everything is very, everything is high quality. Everything is low volume, uh, you know, relative, but, and we, we break everything down into smaller chunks. We just do it more often. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We do it as, we do it as, as often as we can get away with, with the minimal dose, you know, what are they, what's the term Dan's came, I think Dan came the minimal effective dose. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. We mm -hmm. have to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call ours a minimal effective dose. I would call ours the optimal effective dose that we, that we, you know, we do each time and, and, and we just keep applying it. And what I think is that I think just the way Matt Viev set everybody off on this path back, you know, whatever, 70 years ago or whenever the hell it was, yeah. Yeah. We, we, we just all fell into this. Everybody just fell into this paradigm where where you you know you you stimulate adaptation by by intervening yeah on either a week-to-week -week basis a day-to-day -day basis or even jesus a, a minute to minute like within a work like everything yeah. everything is changing all the time and the reason why nobody you know and and the reason why that has worked quote unquote it's worked because everyone is doing it totally like everybody does it's it's that it's the only paradigm and then bondage comes along and he's like no <laughs> he's like, we're just going to do this and 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 i'm telling you i mean it you know it it's pretty effective like it yeah now i'm not saying it's for everybody and i'm not saying again i'm not saying that the complex method or anything like that is you know it is you know that everybody should go out and do it but what i am saying is is that it's worth looking at because i think it gives you a different perspective on adaptation right yeah. you really do have to control the stimulus and and Stu and i had this talk about this I and mean, it was more around the the number of variables that you put into your program and how yeah. you know because you know and and people say well you know they're changing shit all the time and wave loading and everything and they go well it works well well yeah it works it works relative to everybody else sure but Hot and but you have so much content in there with I so know. many changes. How can you assume that what what you're doing is? You know, how, how can you say, well, I know that this exercise is is giving me, you know, this improvement. Okay, I'll oh, stop yeah. talking now. Let's no, move, no, let's I mean it. Like, <laughs> I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts that come to mind about this, and um, the first one is that. Uh, it's like you said, we, we, we get lulled into a way of thinking, right? So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a group think process. So you have a paradigm and let's just say it's a, it's a theory, right? It's a periodization theory. It's not a fact. It's a, it's a, an, maybe an art form or something if you want to go really kind of out on a limb, but it's a, it's a theory. It, and so we're kind of lulled into doing things a certain way. And these notions get passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on. And it's a method by which people organize their thinking and their training and their processes. And I think that 
there is not a lot of good scientific evidence to suggest that that is in fact the best way to do this. In fact, back to my original point, is that physiologically we might argue exactly like Bondarchuk thinks is that there's actually probably no real mechanism or reason why that should work that way. And so where we've arrived at, I think, is number one, you got a lot of groupthink. A lot of people think in the same way, teaching the same stuff, doing the same stuff, not wanting to experiment and challenge their own ideas. And and number two is that, in, and I, I'll put myself in this camp as well, is that I think sometimes we feel we have to do that because it justifies our paycheck. And you our know, existence. It, I was just yeah, going to say, man. Yeah, if I, totally, if I, if totally, I'm right, if I'm totally. working, you know, I, I work with an athlete where I'm trying to, you know, justify what I'm doing and gosh, it's never been worse than it is today. Like there's so much inundation of information and ways to train and things to do and new movements and exercise. Like you're constant, like your athletes are constantly being exposed to this. And I think at some point, you know, to maintain your quote unquote relevance, it's like, if I'm not writing a program with the latest and greatest stuff, then all bets are off. And you know, when I felt that Derek, mm-hmm. I took two years off the floor when I was wrapping up my PhD because I was writing and I got more of a kind of a high level director job. And I was, I was sort of navigating other fires, which is the way the programs are heading and just large, large, large picture stuff. I remember getting back on the floor because we had a we had a budgetary constraint that required us to, you know, essentially we couldn't hire back another strength coach. I was like, well, this is perfect. I miss coaching. I want to get back on the floor. And I can remember coming back and feeling like I was back into, I, I, it's like I landed on the planet Mars. I came back on the floor and I was looking around at what all the coaches were doing in our center and the way everything had changed. And I was like, what the, like, where are we? Like, what is everybody doing? What is, what are these, like, where did the basics go? Where did just, where did just the basic stuff go? And where, what, what are you guys talking about? I literally struggled for, for a few months to trust myself again that I was like, did I miss something here? Like, did I miss, I feel like I missed a whole, I missed, I missed like three chapters in the textbook. And I started to slow down a little bit and say, oh, right. It's noise. It's noise, man. It's a lot of noise and it's a lot of like, it's not a systematic scientific approach by and large. It's a lot of noise and we're doing that to create um, a social dynamic, I think. And I think we're doing that to create relevance and we're doing that to create a sense of our own sort of like self-worth and part of the process, mm-hmm. create buy-in uh, to, to, to and, and, and by virtue of doing this, you know, we kind of lose the forest through the trees. So, um, Often, often, I should, we should say, you know, often with the best of intentions. Too. 100%. Right. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. I'm guilty. Uh, listen, I'm guilty of this. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, oh, hey, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I am guilty of this as well. So where my reality check comes in is constantly coming back to what is the intended training effect? What are the one or two priorities that I can accomplish? What is maybe one more thing that I can maintain along the way? And I say that because some of the sports that I've worked more in in the past few years do require, you know, a multitude of physical capacities, right, to be able to support sport performance. And I, I put sport performance at the pinnacle. Like we serve sport performance. So if you're a snowboarder, if you're an alpine skier, 
Um, you know, sometimes, you know, there are layers of physical capacities that these athletes need to be able to support sport performance. And it's not always, it's nebulous. We don't always know exactly what that's what I love about when I listen to you about, you know, um, the throws, it's like, it's a very pure form of, of sport performance. Um, some of these other forms of sport performance are nebulous and hard to kind of put your fingers on in terms of what they need. But at the end of the day, like, you know, we, we, there are, you know, what is the intended training effect? What is the sequencing you need to achieve that? And how many exposures do you need to have to a stimulus to bring about adaptation and then stabilization? And then once we have stabilization, how do you keep a handle on a decline in performance, which is an indicator Mm -hmm. that we might need to switch something up here. And that's, that's what I kind of boil it down to. Yeah, I think I think another way to look at this um, that I, I've talked about recently. I just did a podcast for the philosophical weightlifter, weightlifting a guy I'd never heard of, and he had uh, apologies to, um, uh, to to him. This guy's got this great podcast, and he reached out and asked me to speak. And we we did a two hour talk, and I was talking about all this, and and one of the things I mentioned on there is you know people get means and methods confused right mm-hmm. they they or they don't understand the basic difference between them. so what so you so you can go out there online right now you know this better than anybody and you can find a million different systems training systems this, yeah. this training system the that training system i won't mention any of them by but there's lots of them and people buy into them right because it's a it's a package somebody's selling and you know that's fine right but in reality, there are very few actual training systems, quote mm-hmm. unquote, where you've yeah. got, uh, you know, a, a system by the definition of it, where, you know, you need a feedback, you know, you need proper feedback and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the Bonner check, I think, system is an actual system. And I yeah. think a lot of people, a lot of people um, confuse systems with means. And one of the things that I you know, I, I actually talk about this in the course and I mentioned you and, and this is back when you and I were sort of talking about doing something together, you know, yeah. because, and one of the reasons, you know, I, I began that discussion with you. And one of the reasons is because like you and I have actually only met like once or twice with that one dinner with Stu where we didn't really talk a lot cause we were sitting across the table and then, oh, yeah. I found out I presented in Victoria and nobody, I didn't know you were presenting there and I, you were running yeah. to catch a plane and we said, hi, and we've actually, you know, you're one of these guys. I know that this, our relationship is almost completely online, but yeah. anyways, but, but I know your work well. And I remember I was sitting in on that presentation. You were showing this matrix. It was this, this big chart of essentially you had taken all of the, all of the, uh, you know, in terms of strength, resistance training you had taken um uh you know all of the different means and uh, and sort of systematically laid them out in a chart in terms of you know if you want this effect you you go here if you want this effect you go there you know it was all really well done right and in the course i say look you know this course bonnerchuk system does not give you means it doesn't sure. tell you what to do. It doesn't tell you how to load. It doesn't tell you how to how to like specifically load. That's a means. And once you understand your system, like or or this system or any other real yeah. system, yeah, 
then you then you need to just you can do whatever means you want. And I say to them, look, you know, if you want in when it comes to strength, all you really need, if you understand the underlying specifics of it, is Matt Jordan's little chart matrix. And I think I either present it or I talk I talk about where to find it. And I'm like, everything you need is on this in terms of means. There isn't anything you can do. That, that, that we know of right now in strength and conditioning or strength applications that is not on this chart. And you can use any of it within the bond or truck system if you apply the principles because yeah. the, the system is really just that. It's a bunch of principles. And I think people get that confused. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And they, when they think they are, they are operating off of a system, they're actually not. They're operating off just different means and that's fine but the problem is is when you look at specific technical work you look at uh specific development type of stuff to use bondership terms you know so you know uh you could call it specific strength and then you look at more global strength and general strength is that Mm -hmm. you know if you have you're going to have to have means for all of these different things yeah and they're going to it's going to you know then all of a sudden you end up in a situation where fucking everything, there's so much input I know. To, to, to the, to the body now that it's, it's, you know, the body can take it all in and, and improve on it, especially if it has low trainability or they're young or something. And that's sure. exactly what they need. But, but if we're talking to someone in your domain, which is not only dealing with elite athletes, but, What's harder than dealing with an elite athlete? De- dealing with an elite injured athlete. Sure. Because yep. there's, there's or or an athlete returning from um, injury or you know trying to hang on to to an illustrious career into their mid. Right. Four. I mean that that book that book just is not written. They're just agreed. You know, and so you 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 have to work. You know, you can't. On on the one hand, yeah, you have to look under rocks and find all these different things. But you cannot rely on that athlete's basic trainability to get away with the bullshit that you could get away with, with when they were eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, agreed. Right? Agreed. I yeah, mean, agreed. you know, and you yeah. you see you see these coaches that are like that, and this is why I you know when I see coaches who are presenting and selling shit online that are largely dealing with athletes that have huge trainability. They're either in high school or they're yeah. untrained for whatever reason. Oh, look at this. And you know, I'm just like, come on, come on. Yeah. You don't, you know, look, okay. I get what you're trying to do, but you're, you're just, you're just, you know, that's okay. You have no clue whether your, your specific system, quote unquote, which really is a mean, right is is really causing that athlete to improve it might be but you got so many other fucking factors there that there's yeah. no there's no you know talk to me if you are Dan Path and you've got and you're trying to rehab uh you know Greg Rutherford uh for for who's been with 10 other coaches and you know his career's gone down into the toilet you're that's a whole different ball game right Agreed. and so you have to be much more careful with with how you apply things and 100%. i'm not saying that you know you know, and you even get where I think it comes around full circle. Maybe you don't use a system, but where you, you are only applying means day to day, but that is the system. That totally. is the plan. Right. 
Sorry, I, yeah. that, that, I went on a rant there. So No, no, no. This is great. I mean, it's part of the reason why I wanted to, I wanted to do, this, uh, do this with you is that, you know, I always, I always enjoy the perspective that you bring to the table on these matters because, you know, what, like, what couple, couple things that just stand out there. You know, number one is when you talk about a system, you, you, you mentioned something that's still burned to my brain now about the feedback loop, right? It's, it, you're absolutely right in the system there's a feedback loop or at least there's a notion of you know some sometimes i call it like a training hypothesis and as much as people want to want to uh you know debate this that's fine but the process you're doing when you're in a system is you have a training hypothesis that if you apply a stimulus that there's going to be a reaction and that that reaction is something that we could potentially measure which is our feedback right and that's you know, I realize in, in not all circumstances in sport is that going to be a reality where you have a clear, right. measurable uh, feedback loop. But nevertheless, we can look at feedback in other ways, right? So how is the organism adapting to the stress? Well, we might be able to measure other stuff that give us that, that feedback loop. But that's, that's probably the crux of the problem, right? Is when you focus, when your means become the system and, and your means become now the application of training for the sake of the application of training and you don't have the system that's underpinning it, the way of thinking, the training hypothesis, that to me is that to me is the difference, right? And, you know, that's one of the things I try to okay. highlight in, in, you know, and, and I've tried to more and more as I've gone down, down this road. I remember asking this question of Dan um, at uh, one of the Altus uh, apprenticeship programs. And I said, Dan, if What's the one thing? So if you if you had a magic, I love this question by the way. If ever you know, it's like a, a general question that can be asked almost of anybody. If you if you had a magic wand and you could go back and do one, you get a one jet get out of jail free card. So one you got one athlete, you can experiment with them. Uh, no matter what, um, you know you're gonna be okay. They're gonna be okay. But you get to pull the experiment card to see what will happen. You know, and and it's a free a That's free jet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I asked this of Dan. I was like, "What what would it be, Dan?" And he and he sat there for a good ten seconds and said, "How little could I get away with?" And he wasn't talking about how little in terms of um, uh, about like you know, hey, can I can I train for five minutes a day? No, what he was saying was how how much stuff could I get rid of in my program. And how, how much could I boil this down to the minimum, that, the optimal they need? You know, minimum, I agree with you, it's not minimal effective dose. It's like, what is that, what are the key things that are causing the, the improvement or the, the key things that are influencing performance? And yeah. honestly- I think, I think it's truly, it truly should be optimal effective dose. But when Dan yeah. says minimal effective dose, he's making a point. He's making a point. And, and that- and that to me is the thing, right? And I'll go back to that, you know, that first week that I was on the floor after the two-year hiatus, uh, I looked around and I thought to myself, wow, there's a lot of stuff happening here. You know, when you, you know, when you unpack, like, let's say that you run into somebody who's on the street and they're, they're flustered and they're running from something, you know, maybe they're having a mental health crisis, maybe something's happened and they're just rattled and you know they're saying things and they're they're and you're like oh, okay whew. it's my family dude let's let's yeah and you're like there's a lot to unpack here let's just get back tell me what's going on and you're arriving at yeah. the problem of causation 
what has caused you to have all these problems of consequence? And maybe it's like, damn, you know, I've, I've got this one thing that like in, in some way, I feel like that's where we, we, we are constantly trying to get to as a thinking process as coaches is what is like, let's keep asking deeper questions and get to the root of what is the training effect? What are we trying to achieve? What is the training? What reaction are we expecting? And how can we find a way to measure that? And how do we do it in a systematic way? So we understand better what is the implication of doing one thing versus the other that we want to have happen. And man, when you when you walk back into a room after three years of being away and it's the internet era, you walk into what feels like a freaking ton to unpack. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that drill? Why are you doing this movement? Why are you doing why are you doing it like like and and a lot of times and, and this is my sorry, Derek, I'm on a on a, a rant here, but go here's go. here's an interesting here's an interesting point. So I've been teaching, I love to teach, and I've been teaching strength and conditioning coaches uh, through the University of Calgary for 15 years. And it originally was a practicum. So senior kinesiology students would come in the room. They'd be like, man, I want to become a strength coach. How do I do that? Come into our practicum. And I remember in the first years of doing that, there was a pretty fundamental level of programming. So it was like, I don't even know how to put these two pieces of the puzzle together. Like this exercise and this exercise, I don't know. I don't even know how to fit them today. So I have a break in there, probably about six years where I'm not doing it. And today I'm back on. I'm a, I just uh, got, uh, I'm just uh, took a job at the university as a, a, a tenure track professor position at the university. So I'm back on teaching now. Congrats. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's just a bit of a pivot and, and I'm excited about it. So it'll be fun. But teaching these, these students today, I'll have them write programs similar to how I learned from Charles, right? Like write a program and then we talk about it. And today students will email me the program and I'll be like, I can see that there's been way better, um, uh, uh, application of means. So it's like, oh, wow, look, they've got all these things and it, you know, and then, and then we'll bring them in and, you know, I'll, I'll bring the student up and I'll ask them to present the program. And I'll say, that's really interesting that you did this. Um, why did you do that? And they'll say, I have no idea. I just, I just saw it. Like I saw that people do it online. So I figure, I figure that's, I should probably be doing that exercise or that movement or in this order or whatever. And, and I was like, it's amazing that now people have gotten a lot better at applying means because it's so much more accessible. You know, right. your stuff is online, you know, Stu's stuff is online, you know, videos, Instagram. Yeah, but Stu's you, stuff is shit. It's crap. Don't, you it's know, crap. if you're looking for mean, yeah, don't, don't go there. You'll end up. No, no, yeah, totally. It's not good. Yeah. Not good. Yeah, it's for losers. Yeah. Yeah. Losers. Anyways, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, no. I be, but you know, that's that's a. It just kind of goes back, right? Like the. I think what what we're trying to do, and I think this is why you know people like ourselves uh, who've had the, the 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 opportunity to have had you know only a few mentors. Like you know, you you really had to learn this through a very growth oriented sort of scaffolding of information and knowledge. You know, you mentioned Isfan or Charles or pair or whoever your people are, we were, we were in an era where it had to be scaffolded. So you were kind of learning incrementally. So you learned the kind of system before you learned to apply the means. Now you learn hundreds and thousands of different means. Yeah. 
But the system underpinning it is the hardest piece to pin down because you don't know, yeah. like you got to know how to you're think because you don't, you're you're, lost. You're, you, yeah. you can't see the forest for the trees to, you know, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a, that's a cliche, but it's true. Like, it's like, so we, we talked at the very beginning, you have three kids, right? Yep. I have three kids. So we're yep. both battling the same thing, right? Cause one of yours is 14 years old and that's this, all of this on this online bullshit, which can just be, I mean, it's so good in so many ways and so bad in, in other ways. Yeah. And I say this all the time, man, you know what? The biggest challenge for parents moving forward. And this is what I deal with every day with my kids when they're, they're online. I think we're doing an okay job, but I think you really got to have this as a, as a, uh, a philosophy as a parent these days is you have to, you have to, uh, bulletproof them in terms of what is truth and what is bullshit and what isn't right yeah because because it's so hard to tell these days as we all know right yep, i mean it's totally. and so it and you cannot you cannot put them under an umbrella or there comes a point where where, where, you, where you know like you can't you have to bul truly bul get them to think for themselves right they sure. have to be able to determine themselves what is bs and what isn't because despite you know, whatever filters that you're going to put on your, you know, on your, on, on your Wi-Fi wi router or whatever the hell it is, yeah. they're going to find it. They're somehow they're going to find it. it's going to get sent to them. And, yeah. you know, not just the bad stuff, but the stuff that is like, you know, hard, you know, how do we know what's, what's, what's true and what yeah. isn't? It's just the true. exact same thing. And I say this all the time, you know, young coaches, I, I, I don't envy them. No. You know, I don't envy them. They, I mean, I had to go, you know, what is it's uh, I always say this GV754, right, which is I think that's what it is. It's, a, you know, that is the library reference call number. If you go into the stacks, <laughs> you go to I think it's GV754. You find that in a library, you're in the sports science section, right, in any library in the world, right, because that's what I had to do. There was no Internet. Right. And so we, we had to. And. And, you know, that sound or, you know, go down to Dan Paff's place and come home with, a, you know, you know, 5000 sheets of paper like I did. Right. And plot, try to plow through it. Right. But it's it, it's so hard to uh, I, I don't envy coaches these days that have because you're right. They 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 have all this in front of them. And how do they how do they put it together? Right. And, and it's so easy. And then and then they switch from one to the other because, you know, when the new flavor of the day comes along, they 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 get into it and. It's like, oh, you know, you know who taught me, uh, I, at least I had, had a big hand in this. Although I didn't know him all that well. I said this all the time. I said this in this recent podcast for this other guy I did was uh, the, the one person who more than anything taught me bullshit to, to was uh, how to how to separate the bullshit. Keep things simple was Charlie. Right. Char Charlie yeah. Francis. I mean, um, and, you know, I mean, who was. I've said this often, he's, you know, he was good to me when I was a young coach. I had no reason to be. And, uh, but one thing, you know, you watch him coach or you talk to him and it's all, it was just, it, he had everything so streamlined and simple. And yeah. again, like if, you know, there, I, I think Charlie got to a point where he was such a pariah that in order to make any money, he started putting his stuff online and working with Derek, who did such a great job of putting his stuff up there. But again, it's like we were talking earlier, it, it kind of forced him to 
over you know, over reduce what he was doing. Yeah. His his philosophy is so simple and yet so effective in so many ways that how do you you know like you like how do you sell something that simple? You people yeah. want details. They want they want information and he did a very good job of putting putting all that together. But really I mean, you know, if you truly understand it, you can explain the whole thing in five minutes. And and but yeah. he but he really but he really taught me that about about not buying into BS, right? Like not yeah. like not you know knowing what is you know don't get distracted with all the all the crap. Like what is sure. what's effective? What's going to work? Anyways, yeah, listen, I man, I have I have uh, you know we're over our two hours yeah. here. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, and 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 I want to do this again. For sure. Like I'd, I'd like to kind of theme. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's do a couple of these. And, and, uh, cause there's all kinds of others. I mean, we talked about muscle hypertrophy today, but that's really not what I, I mean, I mean, that's, that's important, but I really also want to get into the, the intramuscular coordination. I want to talk yeah. program design, eccentrics, all that stuff. So, okay, man, well, listen, you, listen, dude, you did a great job. I really appreciate that. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. Uh, which, which, you know, I, I will make sure that I talk about your, your, uh, your, your website in, in the, in the intro, but just so people listening right now, what's, what's your website again, jordanstrength.com. Yeah. Yeah. Jordanstrength.com. My Twitter and uh, Instagram handles are also Jordan strength and, um, all my courses are on there. Um, the other course I didn't mention to Derek, when you're asking me about the fourth course, or I, I think it was the fourth course. And I, I kind of left this off. I do have the mentorship, but the other part of the fourth course is I have a, a course on how to become a little bit more of a data scientist for a strength coach. Um, not that you're, so it's like programming in R and data analysis and visualization, which, you know, as you know, like you, even in the, in the, in the stuff that you sent me, like coaches are trying to visualize their data, interpret their data and, uh, trying to teach, teach a few basic white belt skills on how to, how to take some data and convert it into a beautiful picture. So Anyways, you can well, go there I, and check it out. I'll say this. I'll say this. The courses are definitely not overpriced for what you get. There's a ton of information. And coaches pick and choose. Coaches yeah, can, you sure. know, and, I, mean, I mean, that's what I do. Like, right? Like, pick I mean, I'm going through around. it. I'm going through it with a fine-tooth comb right now because, you know, I, I, I want to do it. And I want to, you know, I want you and I, I want some stuff to come up that we can talk about. Yeah. But there's, my point is, there's something there for everybody. At, yeah. at any level. Right. And so that's important to say, it's not just, we made it, you know, we talked about some pretty specific stuff in terms of the science of muscle architecture and all that today. Um, but, uh, but there's, I mean, there's any coach can, can get into this and get something out of it. For yeah. sure. All right, man. Awesome buddy. Well, hey, listen, Appreciate man, it. take it easy. All right. All right. Take it easy. Take care.